Today on Coco Disaster, I'm betting it all on that black-haired girl. Hi, and welcome to Coco Disaster. I'm your head of podcast relations, Chorpsaway. And I'm also here. Hello, it's me, Darius Vacuum for date night. <laughs> wow, who's she's here, everyone. I finally made it. Thank you all for electing me uh, to to be on the show. I'm very I'm very happy to transfer to this podcast. That's right. The second female in podcasting history wow. has finally made it onto Coco Disaster. Wow, what an honor, really. Um, it was a shame I had to kill the first <laughs> one in order to get here, but, you know. Uh. <laughs> Y'all ready? Y'all ready to talk about this horny anime? We're talking about Kakegurui. So, welcome to the single serving for this season. Um, I know that I said beforehand that we would be doing one on Psychopaths. Some things happened. We're going to have to delay that for a bit. And so now we're here to talk to you about Kakegurui, which fairly recent. And in terms of things that we've talked about, this is probably the most recent release uh, in comparison to when we've done an episode on it. And Divac brought it to me as something that she wanted to talk about. And do you want to describe that real quick? Just like what it was that made you interested in discussing this particular show? Uh, well, I so I watched episode one um, with a with a group of friends, and uh, as we were watching a bunch of episode ones, and uh, it looked very stylish and uh, cool, and I was like, "Wow, I really like this!" And I think it was you, Torbsway, who even said to me, "This is just Yu-Gi-Oh season zero, but Yuri," and I was like, "Damn, it is! I love it." <laughs> um, and I have since become a Kakegurui super fan, and uh, I've I've read the entire manga. I watched the, I watched this the anime multiple times and the live action J drama. And um, if you were going to ask me like what's a thing that I like know a lot about and have consumed all of, it was that. Sorry, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, to to note. Uh, since this was originally a manga and stuff, and both of us are current readers of the series, we're going to do our best to keep the scope of our discussion within the content that is handled by the first season of Kakegurui. We'll do our best not to go too far forward in our discussions, so if you are considering reading or watching, we aren't going to be trying to spoil things as we go forward. Yeah, we won't spoil the manga. So while later content may inform some of our opinions about these characters and these situations, we're going to do our best to keep the focus strictly to what the first season covers. Yeah. So before we get into the, the discussion proper, I want to talk a little bit about the background 
of this series. So this is Kakarikurui Compulsive Gambler. Uh, the original manga began publication in March of 2014 for a Square Enix split shonen seinen manga magazine called Gongon Joker. Um, so really, it's just sort of its demographic is just men, not of like a particular age group. But this one definitely, um, definitely for older audiences. I think it'd be safe to say. Mm. Is written by Homura Kawamoto and drawn by Toru Naomura, both of who were relatively fresh faces at the time that they made this. Um, the writer, this is their first published work, and they ended up going on to write multiple Kakegurui spin-offs as the series end up being pretty popular, and other psychological thrillers based on games, a series that haven't made it to the West like Rengoku, Dead Roll, and Bunburioto. Uh, and then the the artist for it, this is their second published work. Their first work was on a series called Shisarakuen, which is sort of like this edgy sort of alternative take on like revolutionary girl Utena. And I bring this up just because the some common themes that we find throughout their work are an interest in school settings, uh, games as set pieces, and psychological thrill. All of which you can see sort of how that gets built into Kakegurui. So Kakegurui is kind of an underground hit. It seems like there's not a lot of coverage out, even as it's now been picked up by Yin Press in English, both digitally and physically, and gotten this anime. And the anime's on Netflix. You can go watch it. It's on Netflix. <laughs> but that's also why it's not very popular. <laughs> ah, ah, so sad. And so, uh, the series has ultimately become reasonably popular, certainly within the magazine where it's published, because three other spin-offs have been made about it. Uh, there's a parody for Coma series, and then there are two series that are sort of about character backgrounds, one for Midari and one for Saotome, <laughs> both of which we'll get to in a bit. Great. It's, uh, received a number of awards just in terms of popu- you know, it's- it's- it's shown some popularity with fans, even if it hasn't been quite the mainstream hit. So with all that, uh, the anime adaptation was announced in February 2017, with a release in July, and Netflix licensed the series, so it was simulcast in Japan, and released worldwide February of 2018. Which made it hard to get into for a lot of the people who keep up with simulcasting, and would prefer to watch something week to week than binge watch it, like Netflix's anime setup seems to facilitate. So, the adaptation was done at Studio Mappa. They're known for doing the the Garo anime, um, Yuri on Ice, what, what? and also uh, Rage of Bahamut. And so it was directed by uh, Yuichiro Hayashi, who was the director for the original Garo the Animation and its sequel movie. Uh, script and composition by Yasuko Kobayashi, who has been a writer and script writer on numerous anime and tokusatsu shows, including uh, live-action Garo, JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, Attack on Titan, things like that. And it ended up having an anime-only ending uh, for its last episode that was written by the writer for the manga uh, in an attempt to uh, close off the first season, focusing entirely on its main character, Yumeko, instead of ending on sort of a, a cliffhanger or, uh, you know, a focus story for other characters. Now, as far as I know, the series was not broadcast on television, <laughs> which, it makes sense, but despite that, 
uh, it would go on to reach the top 10 in several new type magazine awards. This is a very popular sort of Japanese magazine about sort of anime and manga. Ended up receiving the top 10 in Best TV Anime, Best Director, Best Screenplay, and Best Character Design for 2017. So the anime adaptation itself also has gotten quite a bit of accolade for what it does. And like, it is a little strange because this is not the most accessible manga and not even the most accessible gambling manga, which is already its own sort of like insular sort of, (laughs) you know, group of fans as is. This, uh, the series is highly sexualized, at least to start, for sure. I, I don't know if I would, I feel like when you say highly sexualized, it makes it sound like everyone's gonna be wearing bikinis and bouncing everywhere. And I would say that instead, it has sexual themes and male gaze. Okay, you're, that's probably more correct. Like, no one is just, like, wearing anything, like, too scantily clad in any of the episodes or anything, like, it's all in the way that the characters act. Mm-hmm. And it all plays into sort of a bigger picture, but it is certainly like... It's a horny anime. It's horny. Like, if you if you want to watch a horny Yuri anime, like, here you are. Hello. Y- you, <laughs> you could go worse than Kakegurui, that's for sure. Yeah, and that's what makes it so difficult, is like... Yeah, there's there, you could go so much worse so much more quickly, but that doesn't mean that this is somehow devoid of sexual content just because there's it's just because it's pretty tame comparatively. Right. And so you know, we're going to be discussing the contents of this show, which means that we're going to be discussing most notably the sexuality in the show, which does go into some sort of like rough topics and explicit detail. So while we won't be focusing too much on graphic discussion of any of these sorts of things, understand going in that these topics will arise just due to the content of the series. Yeah, if you're if you're already like, oh, I saw that show, uh, I saw previews for it and stuff, and it looks too horny for me, it probably is. Like, don't don't hang on and just make yourself mad. Um, but if you heard my description of Season Zero Yu-Gi-Oh! But Yuri, and you were like, <laughs> I'm intrigued, uh, then stay tuned, my friends. That's right. If, you've, if you're listening into this, we're going to drag you into despair with us. <laughs> Let's get, get our, our podcasting, podcasting freak, freak on! on. <laughs> so... Before we get into sort of the the recap proper, let's talk about some of the things that uh, we should keep in mind going forward. So first of all, the setting. The series takes place in Hiako Private Academy, and this is basically a a school for the wealthy or those of high status. Yeah, one percent private school. Um, they have uni- the uniforms uh, are like red and black, and they look like uh, casino staff, right? Like they evoke casino staff uh, dealers and, and right. stuff like that. And um, every like Yago Private Academy is is very overwrought. It it looks like uh, you know an old English library and, uh, inside, and <laughs> the lighting is very dramatic and. Um, and so the reason everyone sort of looks like they're like casino staff is because the the way that status is built within the academy is through gambling. 
there's still classes theoretically. Theoretically, they go to class, but we don't see that part. We just see the gambling part. Not a single class has ever happened on screen. Not one piece of homework has ever been t- turned in. It's always like, oh, how convenient. It's after class. Let's go do the gambling. <laughs> so yeah. presumably school still happens, but the focus is on the after class gambling because the better you are at gambling, the more money you have. The more money you have, the better your status is within the school. And you have to make a monthly contribution to the student council. Um, so right. the, the rulers of the school are the student council, which is led by the student council president. And if you are behind um, in, and not able to, to make your, your monthly payments, which is kind of like you know your monthly payments for continuing to attend the school. It's like tuition, but it comes out of the, per- the, the students' pockets. Yeah, and, and so if you can't, if you're behind then you uh, become, uh, well, you get like a like a tag around your neck. That's like an ID badge. And what they call it is the house pet system. Um, and I believe the tag just says like non-compliant student on it or something like that. And um, Yeah, it, you're considered non-compliant and it also has like a, a pet name on it. So like all the boys are like Fido and all the girls are like Fluffy or something like yeah, that. Yeah, and in Japanese it's Pochi and Mike, which are like, the dog name and the cat name, like a common name. And so if you're considered uh, an uncooperative student, you are basically treated as less than dirt. You are a servant to all of the proper students. Yeah, they have permission to bully you. Like, they can do whatever they want, basically. It goes beyond, like, it. they imply that before it was more like, uh, like freshman hazing, and now it's more serious, like, actual, like, coordinated bullying. Right. O- only since um, the current student council president, Karari Momobami, took over the school, it was not this system, but the house pet system was set up by her, and so suddenly the school has sort of turned into this this nightmare yeah. <laughs> little, like, microcosm. And Karari got her position by gambling for it with the previous president. So she's, like, a, a junior or something like that. She's, like, a, or she's like a second year. Um, and uh, and she, she showed up on campus, at, transferred in, and gambled her way to become the president and is now enforcing these new, more draconian rules at the school. And that's sort of the scene that is set as our main character, Yumeko Jabami, also transfers in to, uh, to the school in episode one. Right. So our major characters that we'll be focusing on, we have Yumeko Jabami, who is sort of our the protagonist isn't quite the right word. Uh, our focus character. Yeah, she's the one that's, that's come to fuck everything up. Or no... She's a protagonist. She would not be considered a hero, I think, for sure. Yeah, I think the, th- the main thing here is that Jabami means snake eater. And I wanted to make sure I said that in this <laughs> podcast because I love it and it's great. And also snake eater. <laughs> Our other main characters are uh, Ryota Suzui, who is our... He is our viewpoint into the world, more or less. He exists only to give color commentary. And sort of, like, set up the scene for a lot of other characters. Suzui is not a character. Suzui is an untoasted piece of white bread that follows around the more interesting characters and is present. 
And sometimes he reacts to them, and sometimes he just explains what's going on. But he's he's not a character. <laughs> he's, like, barely a character. He has very little growth. He has very little personality. And very little money. Yeah, he just exists to, to be there, to be dumped on, honestly, by all the other characters. And then the final major character I want to bring up now, uh, as someone who plays more of a major role in this season, is uh, Saotome Mary. While she is made more or less a villain uh, early on, um, through some developments and some crazy circumstances, she finds herself sort of wrapped into Yumiko Jabami's sort of place at the Academy. Yeah, the disruption that she's causing. Um, and I think also, right. like, nobody in this show is a hero. Every character in this show is a villain, except for Z- Suzui, who is a piece of bread. Um, <laughs> so, like, it's one of those, right? Like, where you come in and you're like, everybody's a bad guy. There's no, like, pure character that you're like, oh, this character is, like, in the moral right all the time and has, like, ideas of justice. Like, it's, it, that's not what it is. It's, um, villains fighting each other within this corrupt system that is collapsing. The best you will get is that some characters have no moral standings. <laughs> and you know, sometimes that's enough given the characters that we meet. So, getting right off, we start with first episode, which is a our first full gamble, and the introduction to sort of the setting and all of the characters. So, uh, we open up with Mary absolutely crushing Ryota in a game of poker. And this is where we sort of learn that, you know, the, the house pet system, and Ryota finds himself as a house pet. Right off the bat. First five seconds of the show. Right off the bat, we are absolutely ruined, um, and we get introduced to maybe the one biggest piece of sort of, like, mood setting that they use, which is these very disfigured sort of faces on traditionally, like, attractive characters. Yeah, so uh, in the style in the manga uh, there, so it's, it's very um, normal most of the time, but then when characters are, I don't, like, when they're worked up, a lot of times it's when they're doing something evil, and, like, they have, like, an eternal monologue about their evil plan, their faces contort and it's fantastic. Like, it's, um, especially seeing it animated versus seeing it as individual panels. Um, it's really, it's a very, like, it, it adds to the whole vibe of it. Like, it's very stylish and, um, gr- a little gross. And, uh, man, I love it. It's, it's such a, a cool art style. Yeah. Something to note is that, and we'll get into this more later, but like, the manga, it's more of like, they become more realistic faces to try and give sort of that uncanny valley of sort of like near human expression and this separation from their natural state. And what the anime wants to do is it really wants to make you feel gross, I yeah, feel. Yeah, it tweens like those faces between each other and it's, yeah, it feel, it, it's gross. It's, it's great. Like it really tells you what kind of horny anime this is. And just, like, the the sort of, like, psychology behind it, which is sort of this this pushing people past, you know, past their breaking point. Yeah, and and also, like, anytime they're, it's, because there's themes of crazy, of going crazy. And whenever somebody's going crazy, their face. So, 
Yumiko enters the school uh, right after Ryota is demoted to a house pet. And as he is the class representative, he is asked to take her around the school. And Mary immediately gets jealous of the fact that Yumiko has sort of like disrupted the way that they're like treating Ryota by being nice to him. Like, like because she doesn't understand the, the school system and decides to, on the first day, uh, challenge her to a gamble to immediately put her in her place. Yeah, and, and an important thing that you also should specify about Mary Satome is that she's Angelica Pickles, and uh, she, like, kind of made made Suzui her pet so that she, because she also kind of likes him, and she's jealous. <laughs> there, is a, there is, like, a hint of that, because, like, she treats Ryota very differently as a house pet, where it's like, oh, I want you to be my footrest, I want you to get me my juice, that kind of thing. Instead of just being, like, an indentured servant kind of thing. Or- yeah, she's jealous that, like, the guy that she has dedicated herself to bullying is, like, interested in this new girl, and, like, a girl is talking to him and being nice. So the game they play is Vote Rock, Paper, Scissors, and it it has sort of a similar idea to the uh, the Kaiji game based on Rock, Paper, Scissors, where the idea is we have 30 students outside of Mary and uh, Yumiko who will draw a rock, paper, or scissors on a card and drop it into a box. Then, the two players will grab out a hand of three cards and play a series of games of rock, paper, scissors. If they tie, they keep going, and if they make it through three, nothing happens. But if someone wins a rock, paper, scissors match, that's the, that's the point at which they trade, uh, trade chips. Yeah, so the idea is that it's not even between the three symbols. Like, it's, you have to try to figure out right. what the, what the distribution is of the different symbols. And another important mm-hmm. part of Kakegurui is that in every gamble, someone is cheating. And the point is, <laughs> and the, the riddle is to find out how they are cheating and then to still beat them. Right, it's it's a very like gambling manga sort of thing where the and very much like also kind of a shonen thing. Like the odds are stacked against your protagonist, and it's about finding your way around it. But this one takes it in a very different position, I think. By the end, the end game of this whole thing is very different. Yeah, Yumiko as a as a character is very much like. She is sort of presented, especially in the beginning, as, like, the the natural, like, destructive reaction of creating such an unjust system is that, like, something will come out of that system that is the means by which the system is destroyed. And so it's very, like, taste of your own medicine. Very, like, even though Yumiko herself is not seeking justice, like, it is a very, it is, it gives, it's a very satisfying, like, feeling of justice where it's like, you cheated but it wasn't good enough, and you've been undone by the very means that you wished to exploit someone. So in this particular game, we find out that what Mary's doing is that she has 21 out of the 30 students that are playing in this game sort of like under her thumb, like they owe her money, and she's basically the only reason they're not house pets. Mary owns this class, basically. Like, she's on top of the whole class. And so what she's doing is she's using signs to be able to tell uh, tell the students what they need to draw so that the game is stacked in her favor. And uh, a lot of times in Kakegurui, uh, the way that these twists are revealed is through the inner monologue of the villain themselves. 
which is great. Um, and because they're like gloating over it, and they're like, "Oh, you'll never figure out my plan," and their face goes all gross. It's great. This is something I wish it did more in this anime. But Mary specifically, when describing this in this, you know, in the episode, uh, turns to the camera to explain it. And this is the only time that this happens. And I really wish this were a more consistent thing because I think it's a cool idea of like making sure that you, the reader, are in on it in a way that is, like, more engaging than just them thinking. Yeah, like they're explaining it to you. Yeah, I, I, I really like that as a touch, and I wish that this anime had done it more. Yeah, anytime this, every time something buck wild happens, it's like, this is great. You should do this all the mm. time. So Yumiko fig- is able to figure out this trick by sort of playing Mary. So, you know, she'll, she'll bet two chips, and win that hand, and then as soon as she tries to go in big, Mary will win in the same way over and over, sort of like, you know, she's stacking this deck to be able to to play Yumiko. Yeah, and also, like, the twists in this, like, the way that, like, Yumiko figures out they're cheating and the method by which they're cheating is, like, it's not advanced. This is not, like, a high-level cheating situation. Um, like, it is very much, like, something that a high schooler would do. And it's very, like, wrapped in a sort of realism. Yeah, it's very, like, you as the audience member watching it, like, once you get used to it, you start thinking about, like, oh, how could this, how could this cheat be happening? And in some of the cases, you can kind of start to figure it out before the main characters do. Um, so it's not meant to be, I don't think, like, a particularly challenging puzzle or anything like that. But I like it because it keeps you, like, you know exactly what's going on. And um, it keeps you, Mm -hmm. it keeps me personally more engaged because I don't have to, like, watch it again to understand the rules of the game. Right. These are all very simple variations of games that you are already familiar with. Yeah. And the ways that they're cheating are very, like, oh, of course you would cheat like that. Mm -hmm. And so with Vote Rock, Paper, Scissors, uh, after losing all of her first chips, Yumiko drops 10 million dollars in cash as her next uh her next gamble against Mary all in and is more or less able to psych Mary out and make her play into what Yumiko already knows is like a trap. Yeah, so Yumiko figured out she figured out how Mary was cheating and she basically like what Yumiko does is she like puts an ultimatum in front of her opponent which uh incites them to be greedy. And, and so she's like, well, you didn't say there was a, there was a limit. So here's 10 million. And Mary's like, you don't have that kind of money. And she's like, yes, I do. And she puts 10 million in cash on the table. And Mary's like, (laughs) you idiot. Like, she's so, this idiot, she's trying to, she thinks she's so, like, smart or whatever, but, like, this, she's such a fool, I'm gonna, I'm gonna clean up, like, ah, ha, 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 um, you know, and, uh, and then she, like, she, it builds this up of, like, where it's very much, like, finally, Mary finally, like, take, taking it over the line to an extreme amount of, like, how much are you gonna hurt this person just for the sake of spite? And and mm-hmm. so it's very much like I've laid this this trap for you, right? Like morally, like are you gonna are you gonna like step over this line? And if you do, then you're gonna be punished accordingly. So Yumiko realizes that the signs are being given by Ryota, since he's a house pet and can't say no to anything that Mary wants, and uses her um her makeup mirror. Is that what it's called? Yeah, she has a hand mirror. Yeah, her hand mirror to uh, read his uh, his directions to the rest of the students. 
and then is able to, knowing sort of how Mary's going to play, is able to play the one sign that is not stacked uh, for Mary and takes the 10 million and immediately sends Mary into crippling debt because she doesn't have the money now to be able to handle this. And Mary talks a big game and then Yumiko's like, oh, well, you wouldn't, I mean, you you wanted me to show that I had the money, so you have the money, right? And, like, Mary is so deeply embarrassed in, like, this very deeply Japanese way, and she's got her face down on the table, and she's like, I don't have it right now. Can you please give me some time? Yeah. But unfortunately, it happens to be the day of the payment to the student council, so Mary is fucked. Yep. And what we find out after this is, um... Yumiko pays Ryota all the money he needs to get out of house pet status uh, for showing her around the school. And yeah. I guess also, uh, she also she also says like, oh, this is also because you made such a fun gamble for me to take a part of by cheating. And so it, he asks also like, how did you pull a scissors when that's the, the one you needed? And she's like, uh, I pulled it from the box. Yeah. And this is where we, this is where we get this first idea of like, Regardless of the fact that Yumiko has solved the puzzle of how to beat this gamble, she is still reliant on luck, you know? Yeah. She is not manipulating anything in her favor. She's merely putting things into the state of perfect randomness. Yeah, so she wants the stakes to be equal. She wants the probability of winning uh, for both people to be, like, fundamentally equal. And so, with her and Mary both knowing about the cheat, they were on, they were on even footing, actually. But Yumiko, mm-hmm. uh, doesn't do anything. She wouldn't, she never cheats in her own favor. Like, she would, yeah. So. Right. She is an agent of pure chaos. And this comes up even more in the second gamble, which is episode two for, uh, double memory. So, we come back, we see that Mary has been completely disgraced. People are leaving, like, nasty messages carved into her desk. They're leaving, like, um, destroyed voodoo dolls and stuff. Like, it's really intense, the, the swing. Yeah, now that she's a house pet, everybody is mad and hates her and bullies her. And uh, they, I don't know, mostly they just destroy her desk. And nobody wants to hang out with her. And they, like, almost immediately put her into servitude where it comes to lunchtime. And she's, like, cleaning things off the floor for other people because they spill them intentionally. And they're, like, stealing her lunch. It's really awful. Mm-hmm. Like, Mary, at this point, is only presented as a cheater, but she does not deserve this treatment. And this is where we sort of get the first look at, wow, the house pet system really fucking sucks. Yeah, it's way overkill. And uh, and so everyone's talking about uh, Yumiko Jibami and how she came in and just, like, destroyed, you know, the person who owned the entire flower class, Mary Satome, on her first day. And, um... So words words getting around, and uh, Suzui and Yumiko are in the cafeteria, and he's like explaining things to her of like more about how the school works. He talks about how Kirari gambled her way to become the student council president, and Yumiko is like blushing as he is saying this, and like her head's down, and he's like, "I'm sorry, don't cry, like it's okay." And and she puts her head up, and she's not crying. This is the best thing that's ever happened to me. I love this school. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, like, Yumiko, there's a lot of, like, she's kind of getting off on on the idea of, of risk, the idea of gambling. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, there is a gamble going on on the top floor of the, the uh, cafeteria 
with one of the student council members, uh, Itsuki Sumaragi. I love it. Who is the daughter of a CEO of a popular toy and game company. Good smile. (laughs) And she, through very large donations, has ended up on the student council. Like, she doesn't even have, like, a, a, like a, a role name, I don't think. I think she is just a student council member. <laughs> Head of money. Yeah, yeah, she's, and she's also a first year, I think. Yeah, she's a, she's a first year student. And so, she um, decides that she wants to do a gamble against Yumiko, because Yumiko is, like, you know, the big deal on campus right now. Yeah. And they play a game called Double Memory, which is, uh, like memory, but with two packs of cards. Yeah, it's just, you have to make an exact match. You have to make 50, there's 52 matches, and you have to make match cards exactly. It's number and suit, and that's it. So, the first game goes down, right? And it's it's pretty evenly matched. Though, we have already been made aware of the, the cheat, as it were. Uh, Itsuki Sumeragi, because she comes from a family, you know, a family that makes games, she has these special not bicycle cards. Yeah, made. they're called. It says raclette on it, but it's like very right. clearly bicycle. <laughs> and so she has had the people at her company create these like custom cards that all have like a very tiny like tell on them to say which card they are. So if you imagine yeah, like the back of a bicycle playing card, the back of a bicycle playing card has sort of an elaborate floral, like, vaguely floral pattern on it. And so if you imagine that, and then imagine, like, one leaf being slightly different, and ev- all uh, 52 cards have a different pattern on them. And it is heat-activated, so she... Right, so yeah. to make sure that no one else catches her, what she does is she has all these heat-activated, so this one leaf or whatever will appear for, like, a minute while she sets up the cards, and she is memorized all 52 variants so that she could do this and no one would be able to find out what her secret is. Yeah. And so the the first game is like, they pretend to be a little bit even, you know, Itsuki is sort of like playing around the fact that she just knows things. Yeah, she's just not letting Yumiko get too far ahead. Right, and and like, by the end, she just does a big run because all of these cards have been shown and she just has the extra memory to be able to figure out where they are thanks to these marks. But she wins with a match that nobody has seen before. So it's like, that starts to tell you, like, okay, wait, like, she remembered all these, but this last one, these last couple just appear to be pure luck, and uh, and she reveals right. that she's cheating. So Yumiko loses. Yumiko loses, and the bet this time is for 20 million yen as, like, sort of an increase on Mary's, and she doesn't have that money, uh, in particular because she paid off Ryota's expenses for being a house pet. Yeah, so, so Yumiko uh, doesn't have the money, and uh, Isuke's like, oh, well, uh, right, and before they even start, she's like, oh, I'll lend you the money. And if you lose, then you're Right, this is a free game. Yeah. And sort of the idea is because she wants to show off, she, she sees this as sort of a PR thing, like, oh, check out my family's cards. Yeah, so- Yumiko loses the first round, and Yumiko's, like, puts on a big show. She's, like, getting teary-eyed. She's like, I don't have that money. Like, please, please, you have you have to let me play another game. Please, please, please let me play another game. And uh, Itsuki's like, well, 
actually, and uh, you know, you you don't you don't have any more money to put up. So you know, if if you win, then it will be even. But if I win, and she takes out this wooden box that is full of like fake nails, <laughs> like applique nails with different patterns on them, you notice that her nails are also very elaborately painted. And she's like, "Well, I really like nails," and um. You know, the thing about it is that they're, uh, that all of these nails are from people. <laughs> right, so she's stealing these real nails from people and then decorating them off the hands as yeah. just like, a, like an artistic thing. <laughs> and Yumiko's like, yeah, cool, I love gambling. Yeah, and <laughs> Sounds good in to the me. background like, what? What? Right, you can, we're, we're not gonna bring up every time, but you can just assume in any situation that exists, Suzui is in the background going, ah, oh, fuck, ah, oh, no, <laughs> Yumiko, you can't do this. And then she does it. It's great. And so, obviously, Itsuki is a villain, right? Like, and, and this, is, this is a level of viciousness that is uncalled for in the situation. Uh, Itsuki lays the cards all out a second time. And, and lets Yumiko go first. Big mistake. Big mistake. So Yumiko's like, you know, uh, Sumeragi, uh, it's, it's amazing that, you know, your, your family is, you know, this big toy company and it's, it's quite a lot, you know, and, um, you know, 20 million to you is like nothing. It's strange that you would stake your, your father's company's reputation on only 20 million yen. And she's saying this as she perfectly plays a game of memory. Yeah. So she flips one. Well, she gets the first match. And Itsuki's like, could she have figured it out? Did she figure it out? How could she have figured it out? How how could someone have done that within that time frame? It's it's not humanly possible. And she's saying all this stuff to herself, and she's like, well, I'll just have to win. I'll just have to win in one turn when it's my turn. And it does this great. And she's like, when it's my turn? When it's my turn? When it's my turn? And Yubiko has flipped over more than half the cards and has won in one turn. Oops. And so, uh, <laughs> basically... Uh, the, the, the new gamble is about whether or not, uh, Yumiko announces the fact that Itsuki's cards are cheats, which would just throw the entire integrity of her father's company into a disarray. Yeah. Uh, so it's, Itsuki's losing it. And Yumiko's like, well, uh, now do you, do you want to go again? And she sort of gets all up in Itsuki's business and is like, uh, don't you want to gamble again? And she's like, no. And she's like, are you really in a position to refuse? And uh, Sumeragi ends up falling onto the ground and crying. And it instantly kills Yumiko's buzz. Yeah, and she's like, how boring, and walks away. The end. So now physical violence has been introduced as a possible stake in this show. And so it's like the stakes continue to escalate but like this whole idea of like you have social status you have money you have the physical integrity of your human body all of these things could be at stake and then yumiko goes to find more gambles and uh stumbles in on mary who is looking like shit yep (laughs) she like yumiko walks in literally as mary loses a match that sends her 50 million yen in debt yeah, and it is against uh, Yuriko Nishinotoin, who is another student council member and the head of the traditional culture club at the academy. And uh, this is also this was also an official match 
which uh, Suzui explains to Yumiko, uh, house pets have one privilege, which is that they can they can call an official match against anyone or just the student council. Anyone once per status as a, a house pet. So I think if you fall down, you get another one, but you don't get two is the issue. Yeah, so you have like this one chance where you could force someone to gamble with you so that you can get your status back. And uh, Mary beefed it. <laughs> yeah, so so it's, things are looking real bad for our girl Satome. Like, it's, it's rough. And uh, she's dragged out of the club. And we learned that Mary's big issue is she could have paid her debt back. That wasn't the issue. The issue is she wanted the status again. And so in that quest for sort of like regaining her power, she has ended up only further in debt. Yeah. So we come into the traditional culture club and we meet Yuriko and she um, is aware of Yumiko and immediately invites her for a gamble because at this point, uh, Itsuki's embarrassed herself and the student council and they want to nip this in the bud if possible. And so the, the game is one specific to the, the Japanese culture club, uh, which is life or death. And it's more or less like roulette, but with extra rules. So the idea is uh, the dealer takes a bunch of plastic swords and puts them in a cup. And so they turn the cup over on the roulette table and it basically just play it as it lands. Yeah, there's like little slots. Right, and so if a sword ends up blade up on reveal, then you win 30 times the, the amount you put in. But if the uh, sword is hilt up, you pay out 30 times your bet to the opponent. Yeah. So it's like huge risk reward when it comes to to the gamble. Also, like, with the whole the whole club around Yuriko, especially the dealer, like, stuff was kind of, like, holding back on being gay, but, like, this is real gay. Like, the, the girl shaking the swords in the cup is real gay for Yuriko, and it's very obvious, and uh, I love it. It's great. A lot of the characters in this show um, who are powerful have, like, an assistant of some kind that follows them around in one way or the other. And uh, Yuriko has this this dealer character who uh, is more interested in defending Yuriko than Yuriko even is in defending herself. And uh, she's she's very passionate about her work. Totally. So the exciting thing for uh, Yumiko in this game is the speed at which all of this happens. Because you only get like 10 or 15 seconds to make bets before the thing is revealed. So there's, you know, sort of a, there's a timing element to it. And that's what she's really excited about. She doesn't care about the money part. Mm -hmm. And almost immediately, she starts going to town on Yuriko as like, just ripping into her. Yeah, so she's like, you're like a, you're like a, a loan shark or like a shitty landlord or something like that. You took advantage of Mary. Um, you, you dangled hope in front of her and then snatched it away, like, you're shit. And Yuriko has this, like, she, her eyes are always closed, and she's, like, in this traditional kimono, and, like, she's very, like, inner peace, above it all kind of person, and, like, so is the whole club, but especially her. And this disrupts Yuriko's, like, sense of inner peace. And she slowly gets, like, more and more mad at Yumiko's, like, 
honestly childish jokes about her like they're not like they're like yumiko trying to be mean which is like not that mean like at some point there's a really complicated one about all of the different readings within her last name and sort of the characters within them and leading to basically like oh this is all like some stupid bullshit you're an idiot kind of thing yeah it's like not it's not a good it's not even a good insult like right like it's just nonsense and uh she goads Yuriko into betting uh, all of her chips in a certain way, um, or just to put them all out there. Just betting all in. Yeah, it's just, yeah. It, they, she wants her to go all in because Yumiko really wants to go all in. Yeah, and so uh, so Yumiko sort of pulls out the same kind of idea that she did with uh, Sumeragi, which was, uh, you know, you're betting an amount that is not any, doesn't mean anything to you. Um, if you lose, you're still fine, but I'm betting everything I have. And Yumiko puts all of her money on one number. And, uh, that, like, freaks, uh, Yuriko out. She, like, opens her eyes. She's like, if it's that number, 23 or whatever, then that's it. Like, I'm ruined. And, and she even thinks about, like, the whole reason I have this club set up is so that these girls don't become house pets. And, what am I going to do? And, like, it really hits her, like, the actual risk that she's taking by doing this. Like, all of a sudden, the, the odds are even. And right before the reveal happens, who busts in the room? Oh, no. Yumiko reveals the trick first. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah, yeah. She's like, uh, hey, so I've noticed something weird about all of these hands, and that's that the swords aren't falling like you'd expect them to, like, in the middle. So... What she's found out is that all of the um all of the girls in the club have these like mag or like these small piercings in their hand, and all of the swords have little magnets on them. So basically they're using the piercings in their hand to manipulate the swords so that they are more likely to fall in places that Yuriko bets on. So, like, you know, she tends to bet on the edge because that's where they're inevitably going to end up if they are magnets being, you know, attracted to something. Yumiko talks about how great this cheat is because it's not foolproof, which makes it basically perfect for hiding, right? Like, even in this high stakes moment, who knows who's going to win? Yeah, that it's actually very stable. Like, she, she makes minimal gains and just, like, keeps it's very safe, actually. And like that, she mm-hmm. never. She's not actually taking on very much risk because, in the long run, she'll slowly get more and more money. And this is this is uh, bad. Meanwhile, Yumiko's full bet would get her two point one seven billion yen as a payout. Yeah, which would be all of Yuriko's money. So Yuriko wants to talk down. Wants to talk down Yumiko. Like, hey, let's take this back a second. We can get this figured out outside of the game. <laughs> But oops, here comes the council. Too late. Yeah, uh, the student council president, Kirari, comes in. And I think it's like Kirari and uh, the vice president and Sayaka, who is yeah, who is the secretary. And so the president decides, I'm going to be an observer. There's a lot of money on the line. <laughs> a big thing just happened with one of my student council members. So why don't I just, why don't I just check in, make sure everything's okay. I love. It's, let's talk, let's also talk about Karari and Yumiko for a minute because Karari is ice cold. She has ice blue eyes, and everything she does is blue or like glows blue. And Yumiko is 
horny all the time and has bright red eyes uh, when when she's like uh, going crazy over the top or whatever. And it's like it's hot and cold, and they are like so they're so clearly like diametrically opposed forces, and it makes them feel like they're both like opposed forces of nature. And then the cup comes up, and wow, what do you know? Uh, Yuriko won this one. Yeah, randomly. And so by the end of the game, Yumiko owes the student council 310 million yen. And Yumiko accepts the loss, but later, when talking to Ryota, notes that it's a cheat. Yeah, so she even says to Kirari directly, like, oh, uh, what's it called, like a badger? Or something like that? Yeah, yeah. did a badger influence us? And what we learn is that the badger is a reference to someone who would be underneath the mats of, like, a, a gambling house and would manipulate dice by, like, pushing a pin through the, through the floor and, you know, make it so that the house wins. And she can't prove it, but she is almost positive that this is what has happened with this gamble in order to save face with the student council. And so uh, now Yumiko's a house pet. Yep. <laughs> and while a bunch of students go to, like, bully her, uh, Yumiko is, like, a hundred percent just down for being a house pet. Like as soon as they're like, "Oh, you're you're a kitty now," she's like, "Yeah, I fucking am." Meow, meow. I'm a fucking cat. <laughs> and starts rolling meow. around on the floor. Hey, hey, you want some of this? And then they all leave because they're disgusted. Uh, you know, like Nyan. Yeah, like. And then we find that because of their overwhelming debt, both Yumiko and Mary are being saddled with something called a life plan. Yes. And so in. The, the start of the next episode, we learn kind of what, uh, you know, what these are, which when you're at a certain point of debt where you more likely can't pay it back, because the school is so inundated with the idea of status and stuff. And everyone has political power. Everyone is like the, the child. And we don't know of whom, but like everybody's like the child of influential people in Japan, like the most powerful people. And some people are just, like, lucky. Like, yeah. like Mary doesn't come from a position of power, or her family doesn't, but she's sort of the exception. So these life plans are booklets that just account literally everything that you are going to do for the rest of your life. Yeah. So, like Mary, she's told she, you're going you're gonna to marry this person, you're going to have this many kids, you're going to bring about this change, and all this is going to happen. And Mary is pissed as hell. And she bursts into the student council office to confront uh, whoever sent this to her, and she is met with uh, a character we haven't talked about yet, Bruna, who is uh, a gamer gremlin. A goblin. Yeah, she's... She is... She Of all the worst characters in this, she's the worst. Just because I feel like she is always drawn the worst as, like, this horrible goblin child. She is... Um, wearing one of those, uh, what is it called? A kirigumi? Like, she's, she's wearing, like, a, a, a dog ear hoodie. Yeah, she's, she's got a bright orange dog ear hoodie. She's got, she looks like a child. She's always has a lollipop and, and yeah, and she has her. a Vita that she's constantly playing and not paying attention to what's going on. And she's just a little shit. And I love, I love Runa. She's the worst. <laughs> uh, but so this is where we learn about the life plan. We, uh, we note, or uh, Runa notes that, like, oh, you could pay it back, 
but good luck with no money and no official match. Yeah. So basically, like, oh, you're stuck here forever. Uh, Yumiko takes it much better. She's like, oh, this is so exciting, this idea. Yeah, she's like, oh, she's like, the reality is starting to distort as she's, like, talking to Suzumi walking down the hallway. And she's like, my pulse is quickening and, like, all this stuff. Like, she's describing the physical sensation of, like, the fear and dread that is overcoming her. And she's like, I love this feeling. And it's just like, oh, my God. So uh, then Yumiko, because of her pet status, is stopped by a bunch of dudes who uh, want to take advantage of her sexually. Yeah, so we got the bully, Jun Kiritari, and he, uh, he's like, oh, come with me <laughs> out behind the school. And she's like, okay. But then as soon as it's like, oh, I want you to have sex with me, she's like, ah, you're not my type. And she's like, I'll take off my clothes for you, um, but uh, I'm not going to have sex with you. And they're <laughs> it's like, it's a good No, lie. she even gives up on the taking off the clothes. She, like, takes off her jacket and then's like, I don't like you guys. Eh. And she makes this little X with her fingers, and it's really good. So then he threatens her, but a new girl shows up as the student council beautification officer, Midari uh, Ikishima, who has a gun and is pointing at this dude like, hey, none of this bullshit. It is a real gun. It's a note. real gun. And like, this is an escalation in itself. Like, there's no guns. This is a school. I mean, this is also Japan, so there are no guns. There are super no guns, yeah. So this is terrifying. She just she just has a gun in her book bag. And so, and, I mean, she, she, clearly she's allowed to as a student council member. So what she does is like, okay, okay, hold off on this. How about we gamble about it? Russian roulette for sex. And, it, and she starts getting really into the idea of playing Russian roulette with this dude. And it really kills the mood. The guy leaves and she's basically like, wait, you just... Do you not want to have sex with me? What was what was the problem? I don't know what happened. She's like, if you really want it that bad, then I'll give it to you, big boy. And like the whole nine yards. But for Russian roulette, the requirement is still Russian roulette. Yeah. Midari is like kind of terrifying looking on her own, even when her face isn't all contorted. She has an eye patch and piercings and a but and like a big tacky bow. It's like goth punk by way of, like, Avril Lavigne. Yes, it's extremely Avril Lavigne, the way that she looks. Yes, absolutely. Damn, got it in one. And so, kills the mood. Yeah, and, and Jude, like, yeah, his reaction is like, oh, like, you killed, killed the mood of, like, my threatening this girl with sexual assault. And, uh, and just tries to, like, tough guy his way out of the situation, uh, leaving Midari confused. Right. Yumiko is like, thank you so much for saving me. You know, it's that's great. And Midari, uh, I guess, sort of like immediately falls for Yumiko and is like, oh, well, you can pay me back. Everyone knows Yumiko at this point. And yeah, but we uh, we don't she, we, she doesn't follow up on that until after this next gamble. Right. So what happens is a notice goes out for the debt settlement party. And this is a school wide event for all of the pets to have a chance to fix their lives. So this is a game within a game. So the, the debt settlement game is called the Debt Swat. Debt, debt Swap. Yes. Uh, so in groups of four, students will compete in a game. And ultimately it ends up, so four people of different debts will play each other. And whoever wins first doesn't have to pay anything. Yeah. So the debts are redistributed based on how much you right. win. And so you can you could lose all your debt, yeah, if you win, or you can exchange your debt with someone who has uh, less than you. Right. So 
uh, before the game, Mary and Yumiko confront each other, and Yumiko's like, oh, hey, it's my best friend, Mary. Yeah. And Mary's like, oh, God. Like, she clearly doesn't want anything to do with Yumiko, because Yumiko is technically the catalyst that led to her being in this situation. Yeah. And she also notes how BS the situation is, in that the student council is basically giving people back the money they stole from them in the first place. Yeah. And so, of course, Mary and Yumiko end up on the same team. And Mary even says, like, I hope I'm not on your team. And it immediately cuts to them being like, Mary and and Yumiko are on the same team. And Mary's like, ah! And so the game they play is two-card Blind Man's Bluff. Um, Jokers and face cards are removed. And it's basically just, can you get a pair or (laughs) or the highest card? Yeah. And uh, you get you get a, a pair, like the numbers are the same, or the suit is the same, which is called a mark. So each player gets 10 chips, each which denotes a tenth of the debt that they, uh, they write down as their debt. They're allowed to give any amount of money for what their debt is. So if they only want to make back a little bit and, like, risk less, they can. Yeah, so Kiwatari, the bully, is there uh, with them in their group. It's a group of four. So it's Mary, Yumiko, Kiwatari, the bully, and uh, a girl that he is bullying named Subomi. And uh, Kiwatari starts off the match by just saying flagrantly in front of Sayaka, the student council secretary who is running their game, that he just made up a number. And he's he's not even a house pet. And he's just here to make money because he's going to win and he's going to get that payment from the student council. He's like, oh, I just don't want to pay my friend back, so I'm just going to get some extra money. So, further rules, uh, ten hands, and you're required to bet one to five chips on each hand. No rules, cheating is legal as long as you don't get caught. Yeah. <laughs> Which is the important part here. So, Yumiko and Mary very clearly set up some sort of team thing, right? Yeah. And so, then we're left into the game, where uh, very quickly... <laughs> June is basically set up. Yeah, he uh, he's like, you have no, you you house pets are less than human. You can't possibly win against me. Like he's just like a classic bully. He yells a lot at Subomi, and Subomi is like a small girl that looks very sad, and and he's like threatening her, and he he like emotes uh, like a lot and and uh, threatens uh, Yumiko and Mary for saying shit to him. Um, and Sayaka has to interrupt him and be like, uh, there will be no physical violence in this space, with, like, a scary, scary face when she says that. And, uh, so things are, things are looking good for him, at first. So, June and Subomi are cheating, uh, because Subomi is more or less, like, the plaything of her class, and June is sort of, like, you know, the bully of that class. And so, Subomi is sending signals to June about whether or not you know, about what card June has on his forehead that he shouldn't be able to know about. And it's very obvious because she's doing it over the table. So almost immediately, Yumiko and Mary call it out. It's like, wow, your cheat sucks. You should cheat like we do, where we're writing the, <laughs> we're writing these things into the palm of each other's hands. And all of this gets triggered because uh, Yumiko says, oh, I, I seem to have gotten a very good card this round. And Kiwatari tries to call her out for cheating. And she's like, oh, well, but you're also cheating. And Sayaka is like, what do y'all want to do about it? And they're like, no. And Yumiko's like, no, I want to continue the game now that we all know how everyone is cheating. 
So it's basically like 2v2 now. Uh, one really great bit here is that uh, at some point, Yumiko is doing like a dramatic pose in the setup for just destroying June. And in universe, Saka turns on and then turns off like a spotlight on her. Yeah. Again, sort of this like fourth wall breaking sort of thing that I really appreciate and is just isn't done enough. Yeah, it's great. So June keeps losing his cool. Uh, they're able to call all of his bluffs. And June keeps getting worse and worse to uh, Savomi through this bullying and intimidation. And, like, he's clearly the only one under any pressure. And then, it's the last hand, and Subomi has a pair of nines. She is absolutely- she, you cannot get a better hand, so she's definitely going to win. So, he, uh, upon realizing this, uh, yells at her that she's got to- she's got to win this round, so that, that Yumiko and Mary can't win. But, then- he does the math, and he realizes that she would have more money than him. And he's like, you can't have more money than me, so you have to fold. Um, while he's yelling at her to do this, Yumiko comes up and is like, uh, well, first she says to Mary, like, Mary, please help me do this thing. And Mary's like, what? No, we're going to win. And, and Yumiko's like, please help me do this thing. And Mary's like, fine, whatever. And uh, Yumiko goes over to Subomi and is like, Subomi, uh, one line she really, she really, uh, that really gets me is she's like, this is your chance to, to punch back at him, basically. And she's like, if you don't do it, then you'll be no better than a pig that doesn't walk out of its cage when the door is opened. It's a very girl power sort of thing of like, you know, taking, not only taking back your place as like a woman, but also as like, taking it against the oppressors uh, here, specifically June, because yeah. we learned that June sort of, like, from the start has been the one instigating all of this horrible stuff against Sabomi, like... Yeah, well, he cut her hair, so it flashes back, it flashes back to her before she was a house pet, and she has very long hair, and there's all these other girls that are like, oh, your hair's so beautiful, how did you grow it that long? And she's like, oh, I've been... I've I've been growing it since I was a kid, you know, and everything. And uh, once she becomes a house pet- It's the pet, one thing that she's clearly proud of. Yeah, once she becomes a house pet, uh, June cut her hair off. Um, and she's screaming in this flashback. She's crying. She's terrified. He's just a monster. And there's a really interesting sort of visual effect that's going on as we're kind of like going through a tunnel in, uh, in Subomi's eyes. And uh, finally, she, she screams like, I am- a human being and goes all in and Mary and uh, Yumiko fold and Subomi wins the round. Mm -hmm. And so June is very mad. And he's like, as soon as I get out of here, I'm going to, I'm going to fucking ruin your life. And it turns out, no, that's not what, what's going to happen because when the results come out, they do not follow what everyone expected. It turns out, that Mary and Yumiko wrote down each other's uh, debts. And then they swapped cards, yeah. Right, so since Yumiko's debt is so much higher, each of her chips were believed to be worth a lot more. But because she only set up, like, 50 million yen as hers, they're actually a lot less than Mary's, and Mary ends up winning by having the most chips for the 310 million yen debt. Yeah, so Mary and, uh, Mary and Yumiko win uh, Kiwatari's last. Mary wins. Subomi gets second, which gives her enough space to be able to get out of house pet status. Then Yumiko's third. So she's 
Uh, not quite where she was, but she's still not good. And then June is l- dead last and also dead. Yeah, and so this is what Yumiko meant when she said to Mary, like, I'm going to bet on Subomi. She, you know, Yumiko wanted to see Subomi fight back against June more than she wanted to mm-hmm. place in the in the debt game. So June tries to kind of fight back. He's like, hey, this is bullshit. This sucks. And then he turns his anger to the girls and he's like, I'm going to fucking kill you. And uh, then he gets tased after trying to attack someone. Yeah, he's like about to hit Mary and, uh, and Sayaka tases him and he falls to the ground. And now he's a house pet. Yep. And Yumiko and Mary are friends. Sort of. Sort they're, of. They're friends. They are friends. They're friends. So uh, after the game, we see Sayaka who talks about how like the student council has been checking on Yumiko. They realize there's no way to control her. She's complete. She's an enigma. In comparison to everyone else, there's no way for the council to have any power over her. And then we also learn that she's way into the president. Yeah, Sayaka's in, Sayaka's in love with the student council president. And uh, also, she like they, the, the amount that they were able to find out about Yumiko is that she, her parents are dead. Um, and she has an older sister who is committed in some way and has like very high medical bills, which... Yumiko pays for. So the implication is that Yumiko is loaded and could in fact pay off her debt at any time, uh, but is not doing so. There's literally no reason for anything in the series, but Yumiko really likes gambling. Yeah. So then we see how Mary's life has immediately improved as all of the, the people who used to bully her immediately try to like kiss up to her. And she's like, oh, it's no problem, but really it's a big problem, and she's just doing this because she gets her power back. Yeah. Uh, She specifically notes that while originally she was just vying for sort of this this power, she now wants to personally go after the student council, not only for cheating against her, but also for setting up this life plan, because Mary decides how Mary lives. Yeah, Mary doesn't want to like execute any kind of justice or anything like that. She just she just wants to be in control of her own life. And we learn that Yumiko hasn't paid off her debt with her winnings. And Rio's like, oh, that's probably because she's saving her official match for the president. Yeah, dun dun dun. That's Yumiko's goal. We know that much. Yeah. Well, we think. Yeah. Uh, then, like any good friend would, Mary's like Yumiko. Fucking pay off your debt. Yeah. And like, here's the money. Uh, here's the money that is technically yours because you helped me with this cheat. And don't see this as like a good thing. I just don't want you to owe me anything. <laughs> or yeah, I don't Mar- want to owe you anything. Yeah, Mary's like very proud. And, and she's like, yeah, I just don't want to owe you anything. Like, eh. And you both like, but we're, we're friends now. And Mary's like, get away from me. And it's, they're great. I love them. So as... Yumiko was talking about that she wanted to gamble with the student council president. All of a sudden, she's not there, and Suzui and Mary are talking about, like, well, where's Yumiko? What's going on? And Suzui's like, oh, well, she's, I, I think she's going to use her official match to challenge the student council president. And Mary's like, what? We have to stop her. That's, that's bad. And uh, it cuts to Yumiko walking down the hall, and... She stops. It's very dramatic. Uh, Mary is walking down the hall and she gets stopped by someone different. And Mary has gotten stopped in the hallway by the student council president. And Yumiko has gotten stopped in the hallway by Madari Ikishima. So 
the student council has also been talking about why Yumiko's life plan hasn't been taken back and why she isn't paying off her debt. And they've also come to the conclusion that, oh, Yumiko wants to official match the president. And Midari is fucked up about it. She's like, uh, if she gets like destroyed by the president, how is Midari ever going to get her high? And so... <laughs> yeah, and she's like, Yumiko's mine! There's a... When, when does the bathroom scene happen? I feel like we have to tell the people oh, that a that while happens. ago. Yeah. It happened a while ago. There's a scene where Midari is uh, playing Russian roulette in a bathroom stall and masturbating. There are noises. So just like... That's a thing that's in this show, and we're about to talk about it a lot more with Midari's gamble. It gets a lot more. So Midari decides, oh, well, I'll just kidnap Yumiko and Ryota. And the president's like, well, I, uh, unrelated, I would like to go talk to Mary. <laughs> and so it's, it's really great. Midari's basically like, uh, hey, so you want to come with me for a bit? And Yumiko's like, oh, I, I have these plans. I was, you know, I was going to do this thing. And Midori's like, well, what if we gambled? And it's like, oh, well, hell, if you're offering, I mean, <laughs> why not? So as the head of the beautification and committee... They and, and they tell Ryota to shut up. Yeah. As the as the head of the beautification committee, Midari and her, her goons, if you will, um, have the ability to arrest students. And so they handcuff Yumiko and Suzui and take them into the scary basement. And specifically, they arrest them under the under the guise of like, oh, you aren't paying off your debts, you're not, you know, promoting the school, therefore, we have this thing that we're gonna do. And it turns out what they're gonna do is uh, just have two perverts enjoy a gamble. It's time for the ESP game. Yeah. So the idea behind this game is they've set up an interrogation room and an observation room. It looks like a saw setup. Like, it looks like it's like green tile. It looks extremely like people are tortured and killed here. A horror anime happened in this very scene somewhere yeah. else. So in the interrogation room, we have Yumiko and we have Midari. In the uh, observation room, we have Ryota and Midari's goons. And the idea is that Ryota's going to be playing the dealer. He's going to lay out cards face down in a certain order where each of these cards has a unique symbol. And there's a camera in his room that makes that viewable to the, uh, the other side. The fact that he's put the cards down. Then the players are going to put down the cards as well and try to guess at what the order is. Sort of like a game of, like, Mastermind. Yeah, and every time they get one right, yeah, for every point you win by, uh, you get to fire a gun at your opponent. Yeah, so the, the gimmick of this is that before the cards are shown, each girl is going to load a gun with zero to six bullets, place it in like a, like a, a, a concealed basket, more or less, and the winner will pull out one gun at random and be able to fire X number of shots at the opponent where X is the number of points you've beat them by. So, say, if you match three and the other person matches two, you get to shoot at your opponent once. Yep. Now, as Midari is explaining this, Ryota is super fucked up. And is, is like, uh, we're just gonna leave and Midari's gonna shoot at him for daring to, like, get, get in the way of this. 
Yeah, so Madari really wants to play Russian roulette. She really wants to play Russian roulette in a sexual way. And uh, Yumiko negotiates these conditions from her that Suzui's the dealer and that they only are going to play three rounds. And it already starts to set up that, like, Midari is not necessarily an evil mastermind. And uh, they start playing the game. Yeah, so also, final winner gets a billion yen because Yumiko specifically wants money on the line. Yeah. While Midari is, like, convinced that she and Yumiko are the same, just from the fact that it's like, Yumiko's like, oh, it's not fun if there's no money involved. Uh, we can see sort of this divide between the two ways that they both are extremely aroused by gambling. Yeah, and, and Madari is very much like, I feel like, uh, an unfavorable interpretation of this entire show, where she's just transparently horny for gambling, and, and Yumiko is like, that's not, it's, she's, she's contrasted with, with Yumiko as Yumiko actually is, which is like, I'm horny, but I'm not that horny. And as soon as the game starts, Midari's like, oh, also new rule, you can't just like, shoot at the wall, you have to shoot at the person if you win. <laughs> if you intentionally miss, the opponent gets to shoot at you. Yeah. So, uh, at this point, Yumiko's like, Midari, I guarantee that this is gonna end in a draw. <laughs> right. So Yumiko pretends like there's a sign between her and Ryota. This is the only good Suzui scene, too. Um, so she pretends there's a sign, and he's like, oh, yeah, the sign, of course. And then as soon as he walks away, he's like, I have no idea what she's talking about. We don't have a sign. There's no sign. And she's like, and he has to, like, reason through it. He has to be like, okay, she must know that I know that there's no sign. So the point is just to pretend that there is a sign. Uh, and then I, I what, what am I going to do? And it's like, it's so much. It's very funny. And like, he finally gets to do something. Ultimately, his fake sign is like putting up uh, three fingers. That's it. So the gamble goes. And a lot of this comes from Ryota's angle, where we are kind of seeing his thought process through the gamble and how Midari keeps ruining it. Because like, you're like, oh, you know, if there's supposed to be this sign and it's the first match, you know, Midari's going to have to play it a little safe to start. And then Midari immediately puts a full six bullets into the revolver and tosses it down the slide, you know? Mm-hmm. So Midari ends up taking the first hand by one, and she goes to grab the gun and pull the shot. But Yumiko recommends like, hey, don't shoot. It turns out that I've put lipstick in the barrel of my gun. So what's going to happen if, you know, the bullet backfires and uh, explodes in your hand. And Madari's like, sounds cool, and immediately goes for it. Yeah, and of course, then it doesn't fire. So then Yumiko's like, oh, also, I didn't put any bullets in it. And it <gasps> immediately kills any buzz that Madari has. Madari doesn't even try to shoot, and just like, whatever. Yeah. And then Yumiko's like, oh, also, I was lying about both those things. Yeah, she, Yumiko's like, also, lipstick wouldn't stop a bullet, actually. <laughs> And it's like, whatever, just move on. Game two. So we learn Midari's intentions and the fact that she sees no excitement in gambling for money. In fact, she doesn't get a thrill from anything. Like, it seems like nothing throughout her life has ever brought her joy once. My, and also, like, my girl, Mid Midari, Midari. Like, I felt so bad when I saw this because I was like, this girl just has depression. And so... She does this gambling out of necessity in the school, and ultimately uh, gambles the president 
in a situation that we're not really made privy to. And she loses. Uh, and Madari's like, yeah, it's fine, whatever. Take whatever money you want. I don't give a shit. Uh, and the president notes, oh, wow, you also wouldn't work for a life plan at all because there's literally nothing we could do to get you excited or interested in this whole gambling thing. Yeah, she, and she's also like, we can't marry you off because nobody wants to marry you. <laughs> right, no, literally no one would want to marry you, so let's, let's find something else. And so the idea is, uh, the president wants to see something that she has never seen before, specifically the back of an eyeball. So she sets up this appointment to have like doctors come in and do it safe, and Madari's like, Hmm, but what if I shoved a pin into my eyeball and pulled it out myself and showed it to you? Which she does. It's really brutal. We don't see the eye. We don't see the gouging. Like, we just see her with her hand over her eye and with blood. Right, so Karari finds interest in this, and she's like, oh, you know, you can join the student council. And Madari notes that the president doesn't see anyone else as human and sort of respects that. And this ultimately sparks Madari's interest in gambling for one's life. Yeah. Madari is really turned on by the fact that the president doesn't see her as a human being. Like, Madari wants to be a, like a really intense submissive, and that is, that is Madari's character. And she even starts begging the president, like, let's, I have another eye. Like, what, you know, let's do that again. Let's do it again. And the president's like, no, I'm, I'm done. Right. The president's like, Okay, here's the deal. You join the student council, I'll kill you one day. And she's like, deal. Yeah. yeah. I'm into it. Anyway, uh, the, the, main, the main thing we note from here is that Midari's excitement is the fact that pain opposes the natural interests of the body. It's that betrayal of your base elements to try to avoid pain that gets her excited. It's the fact that she's going against her impulses. And she thinks, she's still saying to Yumiko, like, Yumiko, you're the same as me, like, you get off on, on gambling, and Yumiko's like, no, we're not. <laughs> and so, uh, uh, we, we go back, it's game two, and Ryo's like, Yumiko knows I'm stupid as hell, and that I am a basic-ass bitch. So what he decides to do is he decides to just match Yumiko's hand from game one. Just put it in the exact same order, nothing else. Yeah. So he bets on Yumiko knowing that he's not as smart as she is. Right, that he's dumb as hell. <laughs> yeah, I, w I really like it. I like that he has acknowledged his, his place. <laughs> right, so Yumiko ends up winning by matching her hand from game one and gets two shots. But it turns out that she put no bullets in her gun and is able to tell that it's her gun because of the weight difference because of putting in bullets. Which uh, Midari claims is impossible. Uh, the difference in a loaded, the weight of a loaded gun and an unloaded gun is not enough that you would notice with the type, type of guns they're using and the type of bullets they have. I have no idea if this is true. <laughs> <laughs> and so then we go into game three, which when it starts, Ryota notices something that causes him to like panic more or less. Like he's seen a cheat and he wants to tell someone about it. But also Midari's goons are there and will kill him. So gotta play it. <laughs> that, you know, play it as it lies. Yeah, and then it's revealed the video feed that uh, he has been seeing uh, has been flipped, has been mirrored. And uh, the video feed that Yumiko and Midari have been seeing has also been mirrored. And uh, so 
even if he put down the exact same line of cards as he did before, it's mirrored, so it would be backwards now. So Yumiko would only get one right if she put down the same order of cards again. Mm -hmm. But he's being pressured too much to think about anything, so he has no choice but to just put them down in the same order again. Uh, Yeah, so here in the final game, Midari goes like, oh, Yumiko is just a lot more like the president. You know, she realizes, oh, you know, this person isn't like me. It's much more like the president, the one person I seem to respect. Yeah, and she's like, you just, you're like, you're a thinker, you're like using people, you're using him, you're using Suzui. And Yumiko's like, I'm not using him. We're friends. He's my friend. Which, suspect, but all right. All right. So to make sure that this last game is a literally as even as possible, they both put in two bullets to the gun to make sure there's no way that someone is getting out of this without dying, or getting shot at the very least. Yeah, and Yumiko says, like, this is your punishment for what- She, like, looks at the screen and looks back at Midari and is like, this is your punishment. For your punishment, I'm putting in two bullets. Mm-hmm. So, Yumiko notes that she, you know, she found the cheat because uh, Ryota's right-handed and he kept doing things with his left hand. And also, one of the cards just has a fucking wave on it that isn't mirrored. So immediately it's like, even watching the show, I noticed that. And I was like, that's weird. But I couldn't quite tell like what it was. And uh, but yeah, there's this one that's not symmetrical. And so it very like, all of these things kind of build to the conclusion that Yumiko inevitably draws about Midari, which is that she's not trying to win this game. She's trying to lose it. Right. Because uh, Yumiko even notes this is like a really insulting cheat, since it's so easy to see through. But then when they play the cards, turns out that uh, Midari has gotten zero, and she immediately starts begging Yumiko to just kill her, because it's the only way that she'll feel joy. But it turns out Yumiko also missed them all because she knew this was going to fucking happen. Yeah, so if Yumiko had gotten them all right and Midari had gotten them all wrong, then Yumiko would have won by five, and if the six-chamber gun has two bullets in it, it would have been a guaranteed one bullet would have had to have been fired. And so she got Midari's hopes up, and that was her punishment, with the extra bullet. And so, as it stands, it ends, just as Yumiko said, in a tie. Yumiko says to Midari, we're nothing alike. You, you don't want to gamble, you don't want to take risk, you don't want, you don't let, you want, you don't want the risk to be even between both parties. People like you, I, are disgust me. Right, it's a farce of gambling, all meant to just satisfy the perversions of Midari. Yeah. There's no way that Midari could have won, therefore there was no excitement in the gamble. And then Midari uh, ejaculates. Yeah, Midari is, is so, gets off so much on the idea that she has been so thoroughly found out, undone, called out by Yumiko. That Yumiko saw through her completely, just like the president saw through her completely. Uh, that she just, she just comes. Um, and it, it looks like she's really sweaty, but we know what happened. Anyways, at the same time between these two episodes, uh, Mary has been having a talk with the president where the president's like, hey, join the student council. I kicked off Itsuki, so we have a space. And we learn that the president in this whole thing sees this school as an experiment. She, she talks about how she has this big fish tank and like, even if you put in the most docile fish, a pecking order is sort of forced to exist. And the weak ones will die out while the strong ones get fat and happy. And she wants to see this done on a human scale. And Mary is like, hey, that's really fucked up and I'm not going to do it. 
And so Karari's like, oh, I don't understand why you wouldn't want to do it. That just makes me want you to join the council more. And Mary, for all of this, she declines not because she thinks this whole thing's weird, but because the council insulted her by trying to give her a life plan. Yeah. Um, and Karari, the thing that I like about this show is that since the manga isn't done yet, we have no idea. Like, is Karari like a robot trying to learn about being human? Is she a sociopath? What? No, we don't know. We don't know. Both Karari and Yumiko are complete mysteries. And that leads us to the greatest perversion of all, idols. <laughs> so I love this one. In the next episode, we are introduced to another member of the student council, I believe the head of public relations, Yumemi Yumemite, who is an indie idol. And she, uh, her gamble comes just as, uh, just after the president leaves. So we open with, uh, or close with or something, uh, the president getting onto a helicopter on the roof of the school and Sayaka being like, wait, don't go. And uh, Karari's like, I-, I gotta go, bye. And she takes off in a helicopter and leaves. So the president's gone. So without the president there, uh, chaos begins to descend upon the student council. They're all getting defeated by Yumiko. They don't know what to do. Uh, Sayaka doesn't want to do anything until the president gets back. But the uh, the other members of the council, Yumemi and uh, Kaede Manyuda, disagree. So, yeah, we're introduced to the one male member of the student council, Kaede Manyuda, who is the treasurer and a wiener lord supreme. So he's he's like, uh, I think that Madari and Nisio Toin for having become for having been like humiliated by uh Yumiko should be kicked off the council and and Midari hits back with a hot like fucking you do it then <laughs> and so we learn that Manyuta and um Yumemi who are both second years they want to sort of take advantage of the fact that the president's gone and that there is literally no one in the student council willing to contest anyone else right now to completely take over. Yeah, and uh, and Manuda is like uh, he's constantly pushing his glasses up uh, on it on his face in like this like very like cold calculating way, and like he's the accountant. And Yumemi is like she has pink hair, her eyes she has like eyes with stars in them, and she's famous on YourTube. YourTube. <laughs> Shoutouts to YourTube. What I was impressed by is that they use a YouTube analog and not a Nico Nico analog. <laughs> so Yumemi is like brand new arc. Like she's like a brand new, like I'm going to take out Yumiko. And she asks Manuda for a little bit of assistance. And he says, yes. And then she's like, I'm going to, I'm going to be the one that takes out Yumiko. Meanwhile, uh, Yumiko is enjoying some tea with Ryota and Mary when Itsuki shows up. And sort of wants to uh, get in the good graces of Yumiko. Yeah. So uh, she brings a, a Mont Blanc for everyone to share. She's like, oh, um, my father wanted me to be in the student council, and he might be very mad to find out that I got kicked out. So what I'm hoping for is that as Yumiko is gunning for the president's seat by uh, gambling with the president, she's hoping to just like get in her good graces and join Yumiko's student council, which Yumiko's <laughs> like, yeah, sure. All right. If I become president, sure. Why not? And 
it seems like there's a rumor going around about Yumiko becoming president and like all the house pets are really excited about it because she's still a house pet. Right. So it's like, oh, you know, we're going to basically like, you know, destroy this school setup and we're going to have a revolution. Yeah. And Mary's like, and Mary's like, it's okay, you kiss up. And it's it's like, yeah, I sure am. And it's great. <laughs> so we, we see Yumemi uh, after a concert dealing with her fans where she's doing sort of like the handshaking event, and she fucking hates her fans. Yeah, she has her like assistant, her manager or whatever, who's another high school girl, and uh, who's like doing this stuff, and um, and she is complaining to her about how utterly disgusted she is with her fans, and in this private dressing room, her face finally contorts and changes from the star-eye cute girl face to like a normal girl face. Um, with not star eyes, and she's like, ugh, wash your hands, why are they so sweaty, ugh. Yeah, so she invites Yumiko to meet, and they decide that their gamble is going to be, like, a variety show, basically. Um, yeah. Based on all these different things that it require that it takes to be an idol. But meanwhile, Yumiko got that note, uh, she found in her locker, she finds, on, on her way to the, um, to the meeting, she stops it and she's at her locker and she finds a note that's like a torn up piece of paper that's been retaped back together and also a recording device. So they lay out the stakes. It's for 50 million yen. And if Yumiko loses, her life plan is going to be changed and she has to join an idol duo with Yumemi called the Dreaming Creaming Sisters. That's right, folks. And we get one other, this is like the last fourth wall break that I really appreciate, is as Yumemi's talking, saying that name, and the, the like logo appears in front of her, it also appears in the shot from behind her, as if it's like an actual lingering thing in the shot. It's really good. <laughs> so God. Yumiko uh, asks Yumemi, like, oh, why do you want to be an idol? And, I, and Yumemi's like, oh, it's for the fans. And then Yumiko has some fucking dirt. So she has this ripped up letter, which turns out to be a, a fan letter that uh, Yumemi had thrown away and tried to get Yumemi rid of. Yumemi has this like this like top fan, like this number one fan who like kind of reminds me of that character from Danganronpa One, and it's it's the kind of like stereotypical like kind of chubbier than the other fans, and he has glasses and he's sweating a lot, and like there he is, he's like that. And so Yumemi is forced to admit that her actual dream is to get an Academy Award, like, from Hollywood. And her momentum for that is she's going to become a top idol, which is going to land her an acting role in the Japanese markets, which will eventually give her crossover success to get a Hollywood gig. So Yumiko, with the recorder that she was given in this letter, also happened to record this admittance of hating her fans. And has decided that this is the risk. Yeah, she's like, now both of our lives are on the line. Right, so Yumiko will become an idol, or Yumemi is going to be outed to all of her fans. And theoretically, her career will be over. She will not ever be able to become an idol. Mm-hmm. So, the, the name of this game is the Top Idol Match Of Course You Can Battle. But what they say... They mi- I don't like this one, because it misses the pun, because they say you may battle, because it's you may co, and you may me, and it's you may battle. So the gamble is a variety of games, and 
it's kind of Hollywood Squares-ish. Because every time you win a game, you are allowed to place an X or an O on a tic-tac-toe board, and whoever gets the first three in a row is a winner. So they determine what game they're going to play by dice, right? Right. And the first one is karaoke. Oh, yeah. Which I'm... They they did a lot of effort in making sort of like this one sequence of an idol dance for Umemi to show on your tube. And I'm really sad that they didn't put together like an insert song for this. But there is a song. Like the episode does end with with one song. Um, but right. For the show, which I really like. I, I really appreciate they did that. They actually made a song. Yeah, but they don't use it here. And that's a shame. Then... Then Yumiko does like a does like a, a like a folk song and ends up winning. Well, she does like the graduation song or something like that, like or the equivalent of like uh, yeah, it's it's like if she decided to sing the national anthem or something like that, like very like boring and and oh right yeah yeah she does the I think she does the the, the school anthem and uh, she ends up winning because it's karaoke not based on fan recognition but like how well they did in comparison to the original song. Yeah, so it's like they were playing Guitar Hero or something, like Rock Band, and, and it's like, did you match the line? <laughs> mm-hmm. So we skip forward a bunch of games. Uh, Yumemi's in the lead, and the next game is Extreme Old Maid. <laughs> there, there are literally only three cards, and so it's up to just one pull who wins. Uh, and Yumemi, we learn, has been setting all of this up so that she can lose dramatically and then sweep two rounds to win just all to set up this kind of dramatics and you know make her fans love her more and what's great is there's a cut to commercial in the show and in the the canon of the series at the same time yeah so yumemi takes an intentional loss on this game now we have to play know your fans which is the sort of like carnival game uh, where each of the girls has to guess a random fan's birth month and the closest wins. And Yumemi is ready to take this because she's memorized all of her fans' birthdays and all this other information so that she can be sort of like the, a more proper idol and like really get them in. And she's also inflated the ticket prices for this event to make sure that the game is stacked in her favor. So only her fans are here, except... Except Itsuki, with her infinite wealth, bought three tickets for her, Mary, and Ryota to, fall, to watch along. And it just happens that they, they pull Mary from, you know, from the, uh, from the crowd. And, uh, and Yumiko's like, hey, so uh, thanks for setting all this up. Now it's even more exciting if I win right now, you know? Yeah, and, and Yumiko's like, hi, Mary! And Yumemi's like, who is that? And so... Yumemi's like, ah, shit, I've, I, this is the one thing I couldn't deal with. And so she tries to sort of like read Yumiko's answer as she's writing it and starts like psyching herself out, whether or not it's a six or a nine and whether or yes. not there's this like setup against her. And <laughs> it turns out that <laughs> Yumiko just also didn't know. Yeah. Like, uh, Yumemi is trying for a tie so they can go to a different game, but it turns out that both of them were wrong, and Yumiko was less wrong. Yeah, it's great. And so Yumiko's like, yeah, I, I actually set up this whole, like, 6-9 misunderstanding because I wanted to avoid a draw, since that's lame. Yeah, Yumemi is like, 
throne. She's like, what? Like, Yumiko isn't calculating anything. Like, she isn't cheating like I am. Like, what's happening? What's going on? And uh, and just like that, uh, Yumiko wins. Yeah, surprise, she wins. And so Yumemi accepts this, recognizing that because she's lost here, it clearly shows how much work she needs to do if she wants to ever achieve her goal. And so she admits to the recording, which plays. Um, she apologizes for tricking her fans. But the fan club president is like, oh, you know, it doesn't matter. We were fans of you, not because we expected you to be our friends, but because we're fans of idols. Everyone else is like, uh, yeah. And they all start clapping and everyone <laughs> still loves her. It's great. They're like, it's refreshing, actually. Yeah, they're like, oh, we didn't, we didn't fall in love with you with the expectation of reciprocation. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, wow. So Yumemi well, gets to keep her dream, and the insert song plays. It's great, honestly. They get to do a whole idol thing with the two of them. Yeah, they do an actual song, which is called, I think, Russian Roulette of Love, or something like that. It's good. Anyways, the incident isn't over, because Yumiko's like, Hey, so I got these things from someone, and it's time to figure out who set this up, so that, you know, Yumemi can have this whole, like, career-ending performance. Mm-hmm. And as it turns out, it's... Kaede Manyuda, the treasurer. Well, that's who they accuse of doing it. Uh, also it's him. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's like, yeah. I feel like it could have also been the president. Well, at the very least, they call him out, because he also was like the one who helped set up this game. He's the one who has the most knowing of the inner workings. And he ends up deci- denying it and saying that he'll stake his position as treasurer on that claim. And so Yumiko's like, hey, you want to gamble on that? And Manu's like, no. <laughs> and he's like so smug about the fact that like, I don't have to defend myself from anything. And Yumiko's like, uh, official match, bitch. Yeah, and so she put, holds up her tag and is like, well, I guess I have to do this then. It's an official match. And everyone's like, oh, but I thought Yumiko was going to challenge the president. What? Oh, no. <laughs> and then Yumiko's he he like, I didn't say that. <laughs> yeah, and Itsuki's like, what? And then uh, Madhuda is, like, he he's so cold and calculating and so much of that type of character, but his, like, glasses go askew for this, because he's like, uh, because he wasn't expected for this. And he's like, well, there's no setup for a game. There's no dealer. What? You can't, you can't do this right now. And the vice president appears and is like, I'll be your dealer. <laughs> What's up? I was also here. And the vice president has a mask all the time. And when she speaks, it speaks through, like, a, Almost a Darth Vader voice changer. <laughs> yeah. So, Gambling Freak is on for the official match. Manyuta basically spends this entire game going, Wow, uh, Yumiko's a real freak, huh? She's a real sicko, a real pervert. Not like me, I always take the high road. Right, I want to get this out of the way because otherwise it would come up constantly, but he just spends the whole time like, Wow, uh, Yumiko be crazy. And he's hoping that this saves the student council more or less because this is also being live streamed. And so Yumemi has lost in front of everyone. So here's like a redemption chance for Manyuta. Mm-hmm. So uh, the game is choice poker. Is it a game? It's almost not a game. <laughs> it's, a, it's a game. So it's basically regular poker, but there's one joker in the deck and you can't fold or call. You either have to bet higher than your opponent or match. So it's a game where whoever has the most money gets to make the rules of what kind of hand wins. 
yeah, not so much make the rules as decide, is this game for the best hand of poker or the worst hand of poker? Yeah, which is like, that's the, you know, it's basically all the rules that (laughs) you've got. Like, so, I mean, there's a bluff involved because, uh, you know, you only know your own hand. But uh, Mary very quickly points out while talking to Itsuki and Suzui in the audience that, like, this is absurd. Like, it's as long as you bet one more chip than your opponent, then you're in control and you're super likely to win. And it's just about who can dump the most money on the table. And Monyuta can because he's the treasurer for the student council. He, he at some point brings out like a checkbook showing 5 billion yen or something yeah. just in the coffers for the student council, not including his own money, not including anything else. But uh, yeah, so richest person decides basically who wins. Yeah. Just like in real life. Yeah, so for the most part, we can sort of skip this opening part of this game because it's more or less like, you know, Manyuta just overpowering Yumiko with money. And eventually she runs out of chips. Right, and so she loses, but the game isn't over. She decides that she's going to ask her friends in the audience for their help, um, specifically Itsuki. Um, Itsuki, again, daughter of a CEO of a big game company worth a lot of money. So clearly she's the one to ask. And Itsuki now is forced to make a judgment call because Manyuta is the one who got her into the student council in the first place and has sort of been like, I don't know, like almost a pillar for her until she lost. Yeah, so she flashes back to applying to the student council and he's like, oh, you know, what? you're better off not being on the student council. Like, don't worry about it. And she's like, no, I don't just want to be on this because my dad told me if I have to play this game, then I want to be the king. And he's like, huh. And he pushes up his glasses and he's like, oh, we're the same. Right, because she wants to be president. Yeah, we're the same. And so they kind of have this this relationship of like, they both want to be president. Like, they're both ruthless. They're both kind of the same type of person. And they have... What, what Itsuki thought was a, a mutual respect. But after she lost, that doesn't seem to be the case anymore. He loses respect for her. And especially here at the table where he's constantly like, uh, you clearly can't do anything on your own, so uh, back me. I'll help you and maybe I'll get you back on the student council and we'll be equals again. You're too incompetent to reach your goals by yourself. And Yumiko's like, uh, but what if you just destroyed him? And <laughs> Itsuki's like, uh, that's a really good idea. He betrayed my trust, and now I'm going to destroy him. Yeah, and, and Yuba goes like, Manyuta, you can't decide uh, Sumeragi's worth. Like, only she can decide that. And and the, s- similar to kind of what she said to Subomi of like, what are, you, what are you like making these calls? Like, somehow she's more incompetent. Like, you don't know that. And so Itsuki agrees to be... Yumiko's patron and to continue to supply her with money because she's the only one who has enough money to match Manyuta. Right. One billion immediately on Yumiko. (laughs) Yeah. So here Yumiko does a move that she did previously in the game where she trades a a pair from her hand to give this idea that she is trying to go for the low hand. And Manyuta's like, uh, she did this last time and it worked out in my favor. So I'm just going to keep pumping money into it. Yeah, and he talks about the statistics of it and stuff like that. Like, how could she possibly, like, discard, like, two queens and still have a have a stronger hand? It doesn't make sense. Da, 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 da. Right, so Yumiko goes all in. Manita's like, hey, you want to join my council? I realize that you have a lot of spunk. And Itsuki gets really mad and decides to put in more for Yumiko after that. 
So they're just piling money on the table, and Yumiko loves it. Like, they're both, they're both mad at each other. Like, there's very clearly, even in this, like, romantic tension between Manuda and Itsuki, and I love them. We were talking about this, that, that they're our favorite straight couple on the show. So, uh, eventually, the, the pot gets comically large until uh, Manuda's like, I'm gonna go one billion in again. And uh, just can't match that. Itsuki is out of money that she can safely use for this. And uh, Yumiko's like, uh, you could just bet your life plan, too. I mean, it's te- mine's worth this much money. You could probably get plenty for it. And Itsuki, for a moment, is like, huh, maybe working with Yumiko was a mistake, which <laughs> is really hilarious. But um, Yumiko kind of pulls her back in being like, you need to recognize how strong your resolve has to be if you can't handle something that it, like could make or break your entire life. What are you really working towards? And so she and so Itsuki showing her resolve rips off all of her fingernails with her teeth. Yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> She's bleeding now out of her fingernails. Yeah, and so she gets bandaged up. Manuda is like, uh, that isn't allowed. A life's worth is incalculable. But the dealer notes, it's my ruling, and I decide so. And it's like, raise is legal. Yeah, and it's worth the same amount, a billion. No, it's worth, it's a 10 billion raise. Yeah, yeah. It is worth 10 billion dollars because it is the worth of her company. So they're, they're even. Right. And so when Manuda is like, oh, this still shouldn't be allowed, the vice president takes off her mask. It was Karari, the president, the whole time. Manuda is destroyed. Yeah, and he's like, what? Why? Why you have you been why, why have you been doing this? And she says, it might have been just to see the look on your face just now. <laughs> right, because it, it feels like she knows that they've been trying to set up this, like, this coup for a this while. This is why I wasn't sure if Manuda gave Yumiko the recording device or if Karari did. Because she wanted to take down Manuda. Oh, yeah, maybe. Hmm. We never know. Either way. Yeah. So, um, here we get a little bit of Manuda's backstory, which is basically just, like, his dad caused him to have a complex. He's holding this book that says, like, planes on it, and it's, like, so much. He's, like, this little boy. His dad's, like, the prime minister of finance. He's, like, uh, cash controls everything around you, Manuda. And- (laughs) If things don't end up exactly how you plan in life, you are valueless. Yup. Always take the high road. Right. So, uh, Manu's like, well, if this is the rules, then I'm gonna bet my life too. And since the strings have been pulled so that he's gonna be the prime minister of finance next, he is also worth 10 billion yen. So we're back at square one. Except everyone's literal lives are on the line. Right, and <laughs> Itsuki's like, uh, can we, can we get some extra money from Mary and Ryota? But they don't come from status, so they have no inherent value. Yeah. Itsuki appears to collapse at this point. She, like, takes a step back and she's got her head in her hands. And she's like, no, no, all my work, everything that I did, and now and now my life is gone. Like, And she's, like, crying in the background mm-hmm. uh, as Manuda has control over the hand. And so he announces that the strongest hand wins. The president will absolutely make sure that literally lives are going to be traded here. Because it's like, if... Manyuta wins, the life of Itsuki goes to him, and vice versa. So, 
Yumiko and Itsuki win because they have the higher three of a kind. So that yeah. dropping the pair was a bluff both times to set this up. And Itsuki cried just to make it look like Yumiko was going to lose because they knew what he was going to do. They played him like a fiddle. Yeah, they played him like a fiddle and he gets so, he's so owned that he falls backwards out of his chair and his hair turns white. It sucks they don't show that in the anime. They don't actually show the scene of his hair turning white in real time from being owned. Yeah. And some EMS guys have to come take him away. Yeah, and there's a really great bit where uh, Itsuki's like, Hey, so you underestimated me and treated me like an asset, so like, fuck you, I did all of this work just to ruin your life. And then the president also is like, Hey, so now that I understand what you were trying to do and what you're all about, uh, fucking bye, I have no use for you. Yeah, I think she fires him, essentially, yeah. yeah. Itsuki seems to feel a little sad still, like there's still some sort of lingering respect or, you know, feeling between her and Manyuda. She still likes him. Yeah. And, uh, and Yumiko's like, don't rub it in, you know, like, we won, but, like, don't don't rub it in uh, to Manyuda. And, like, Itsuki kind of pauses and is like, huh. And, like, watches him go. And thinks back to uh, when they when she first joined the council and like some like cute conversation they were having. And at that point, the president and Yumiko have a little discussion that's like basically impossible to follow about. Like Kirari wants to see a, a, a supernova, and Yumiko calls it out as the really what she wants to see is to see herself burn out against someone who is better than her. Yeah, she wants to see herself destroyed. And while they're talking, like, the background changes. Yeah, the background changes and they're in space now. Like, it has a really Killer7 vibe to it, in a way of, like, are these, like, humans talking or are these abstractions of concepts talking to each other? So, that ends and we end up at the 12th episode, which is anime exclusive. And, uh, like I was saying before... Uh, there is another game that happens after this that sort of, like, is the end to the first arc of uh, Kakegurui as a story. But instead of having the story focus on other characters, since it is much more of a character piece on Sayaka, the, the secretary, they wanted to focus the end of the anime on Yumiko, since she is the main character. So this whole bit was rewritten to to focus on her and have her have one last gamble. And I I, I do think also like that last gamble would they would need like two episodes at least to cover it as well mm-hmm. and this is episode 12. Like they only have one episode left. Um so the game here is the tarot cards of fate. We can skip through a lot of this cuz a lot of this is just talking. And so the tarot cards of fate, each card is placed randomly on a series of desks in sort of this library. And three people, Kirari, Yumiko, and Ryota, because, sure, are going to randomly select one of the cards. They turn these cards over, and based on their orientation, this changes the score. There's only one score in the game, and if a card is flipped and it's right side up, then the number of the arcana becomes the point value and it's added to the total. 
if it shows up upside down, then those points are subtracted from the total. And the winner is decided on whether or not we're left with positive or negative points. Yumiko wins if it's positive, and Kirari wins if it's negative. And then there's The Fool, which is sort of just like a game winner. Um, if that is flipped over and it's right side up, then Yumiko just wins. It doesn't matter what else has been picked up. And if it shows up upside down, then Yumiko loses no matter what. And basically, this is going to decide whether or not Yumiko or Karari leave the school forever. Forever. And everyone's here. The gang's all here watching. Mary and Itsuki immediately are trying to tell Yumiko ways she can cheat. And Yumiko's like, no, that's not what this is about. And also Runa the Gremlin is like, if you give her any tricks, I'm going to consider this a loss on her part. So Yumiko talks about how she loves the Academy because of the high stakes and how everything ties back to gambling. And Kirari likes the school because it's a microcosm world of this, uh, a, a smaller version of the survival of the fittest where she is on top. Yeah. And so these are the stakes. The stakes are what they enjoy about the school. They discuss fatalism for quite a bit of this, this arc, and the importance of fate as a gambler who wins against the odds, and sort of like the rush that true random chance gives to a gamble. Especially one where your livelihood is on the line. So, first one is the magician, and Yumiko gets one point. So, she's currently winning. Then, Kirari pulls the world, which is 21, and pulls it upside down, which means that now uh, Yumiko sits at a negative 20. So, there's only one card, or there's two cards, that Suzui can pull that can mean that Yumiko wins, or there's a tie. He can either pull plus 20... Or the fool. Right, and so Marion Itsuki notice a trick that eventually Ryota notices on his own as well, which is that when Kirari was explaining the game, she left part of her, uh, like, finger gloss. Her nail polish. Yeah, she has blue nail polish, yeah. It's on one of the cards. It's fresh, and it ends up on one of the cards, and so we, because she pulled it out to specifically discuss the rule about it, we know that's the fool. But now we need to figure out which one's right side up, which one's right side down, and how Ryota has to pick the card. But then Ryota has this whole, like, freak out about how, like, uh, fuck cheating, fuck odds, we leave things up to chance here in my house, we don't use marks, we don't use cheats. That's what Yumiko would want. Right, Yumiko wants me to fucking gamble everything on this, and Ryota gets one whole scene where he is shown as even moderately competent. (laughs) God bless. Yumiko kind of shows a reverence for Ryota, I guess, in this. Yeah. And ultimately, he pulls the judgment card upright, ends up on a final score of zero, so no one has to leave. Yeah, it's it's a tie. Yeah, uh, so Yumiko and Karari talk about how, you know, the fatalism, this, this greater fate might exist to make this happen so that they have some greater duel later a real battle of wits yeah so you know it's uh it's a nice like end cap that kind of like is interesting without resolving anything and it it develops uh the characters of yumiko and karari a little bit more they get to interact with each other uh which is good suzui gets to do something which okay i guess it's fine i mean 
they set it all up like, like Suzui likes Yumiko and Yumiko likes Suzui and like, why? I don't know, but she does. She, and she's proud of him for doing the thing that she does and leaving things up to chance to like prove how much he loves her, kind of. It's, yeah, sure. I think it's the most character that he gets. Really? I mean, yeah. He's not there for anything else. Yeah, he's the, I mean, he's the audience surrogate, and, and I do, what I do like, though, is that this sort of, like, has us, the, you know, the audience surrogate coming over to Yumiko's side and, and, and acknowledging, uh, Yumiko's way of thinking, which, like, giving into the madness of gambling, like, is kind of like a, you know, an, uh, equivalent to, like, us, the audience, watching the show and, like, liking the show and getting into the show so it all kind of like okay i get it i get it nice nice end cap it's season one is over i think it's kind of like a a low energy sort of end to the season but it does set up sort of the central conflict as it were between yumiko and karari so in that way it's appreciated aruna takes all the cards before they can verify what the marked card was Right, we never truly figure out whether or not the fool was marked or if that was like a play. I think that's fine. You know, that's not the point. Yeah. So, let's start the discussions off. I want to just make a one quick statement first, which is just because this is a show heavily marked in fan service does not mean that it is not about anything. Yeah. Like, part of the interest in this episode is that we're taking a show that I think, well, I can't say it was, like, uh, goes against sensibilities, because no one knew that the show came out because it was on Netflix, so no one watched it, <laughs> and no one cared. But, like, it's it's definitely of a type of show that people just tend to not give the time of day or the respect of reading into it, and maybe some of those shows don't deserve that, but... All of these shows have, like, a worldview behind them that I think is interesting to look at. And in particular, I think Kakegurui has a very interesting set of things that it does within its story that help it stand out against just this sort of, like, fan service kind of thing. Yeah, I, I think that this is uh, more than, than just sexualized female characters, because there is... I mean, there are, is, like, male gaze and stuff in this show, I guess. Like, they focus on, on parts of the body sometimes when people are talking. And, like, the ending credits are literally just Yumiko unbuttoning her shirt and her boobs are bouncing. And, like, that's the credits. It's, um, it's very, it's, it seems like very much a move that's like, yeah, we know that this isn't being broadcast on TV, so, like, whatever the fuck for this ending. But all these characters that we've described to you are characters. Like, there are people in this world with motivations and backstories, and they're interesting on their own. And they're not just like, uh, you know, in other anime, like, this one is this fetish, and this one is this fetish, and, you know, stuff like that. Or like, here's the older sister type, like, here's the younger sister type. Like, everybody is a person. Uh, and, or the ways that they're not like a person, like Karari, is used to be scary. And, you know, the, the whole thing, I think, it, yeah, it has, it has more to it. Like, I'm interested in these characters... And I've seen them develop and change, and uh, I think that's really cool. And like, I want to know what happens to these characters. And uh, so it, it 
it's more than just like, oh, here's like some some horny titillating stuff and that's it. Like, I, I want to know what happens next. Yeah, not to get too far ahead of everything, but like after this point, also the like sexualization stuff really cuts down because like a proper like story arc appears that all of the characters get involved in. So there isn't as much time for sort of these like hornier aspects. So it, it feels very much like sort of the thing that like it's trying to sell you ahead of time. Like, oh, we've got a bunch of sexy characters in our series, but it also has like a, a strong core story to it. Yeah, the second arc in the manga definitely gets like less horny. Uh, but we'll see how it, if if it gets animated, what that what that ends up looking like as well. Uh, don't worry, second season's already been confirmed. Awesome, because I think another thing that we were talking about when we were getting ready for the show is that like reading the manga on its own is not nearly as horny as like watching the anime and seeing it in motion. Like mm-hmm. a lot of the stuff that that people say and hearing the voice delivery with it, like it just it makes the whole thing more intense. So. Yeah, if you're on the fence about it, uh, about the level of horny, I think the the manga is is not uh, is not the anime. So, the first thing I want to discuss is the meat and potatoes of the series, which is the gambles, and how it informs us not only about the world but about each of the characters involved in these gambles. And like some of them more obvious than others, we definitely talked quite a bit about Midari's specifically as like this setup to lose because she only finds joy in the idea of like mortality. Yeah, she just wants to die. But so so I'm just going to read what I wrote, which is one read of Kakegurui is that it's about an agent of chaos destroying a hopelessly corrupt system via the same means through which it perpetuates itself. Another read of Kakegurui is that it's about 12 femdoms fighting while an untoasted piece of white bread follows them around, present. Um, I think each each gamble shows a character's undoing. Like, each villain is a little bit different. They have different transgressions that make them villainous. And the way through which they are defeated through the gamble is, like, it's set up to defeat them specifically. Um, and it's not necessarily because it's complicated. It's so that they can be undone through their own making. And to specify, like, the Agent of Chaos thing, the point is that when Yumiko solves the cheat, it's never like, oh, I'm going to, like, use this cheat against you to win or anything. Specifically, her idea is to revert the gamble back to a pure 50-50 game of chance. Yeah, which is different than other gambling anime, huh? Right, so the sort of, the idea in a lot of other ones is sort of like turning the cheat on the other person because it's so stacked against them or it's, you know, done in a very different way. And all of them are so, like, explicitly against this idea that these characters are gambling for fun, which is not the case especially with Yumiko, who derives so much enjoyment from gambling. In Kakegurui, the idea is more that, like, you guys have sort of corrupted what makes gambling so exciting, and so I'm going to draw you into that, because Yumiko finds excitement in the idea that, you know, her life could be undone with a single gamble. And clearly, 
not many others feel that way because they break as soon as they've been found out. They break as soon as things get to like, oh, there's actually genuinely a chance I lose here. So, yeah, and so Yumiko in a way, Yumiko in a way is like the essence of gambling. She's like the, the spirit of gambling, the embodiment of gambling that has come to show everyone like this is not gambling. Like if you really want to, if you're really going to, gonna do this like you're not really doing gambling you're just exploiting people and i think we see the different ways in which that's handled in you know the different gambles because we see on a very it's weird to say low stake uh match when referring to the first one which is for 10 million yen but like yeah when you see mary's the simply the fact is that Mary gets in over her head with a bet that she thinks she's destined to win, and she just can't pay back when she loses. She doesn't have the money. And, you know, that's that's sort of her thing, right? Mary is a very selfish character, and so all of the yeah. all of the risks and all of the, you know, gambles that she takes are based solely on her as an individual. But you have someone like Itsuki, who inadvertently ends up gambling away more or less the dignity of the company for which she is set to uh, inherit because she gets found out for having these trick playing cards and while they may be personally for her the fact that if that information got out no one would trust in that brand anymore that would destroy the company yeah and the the fact that once that becomes true even after Yumiko is like, hey, I'm going to just, like, destroy your company if you don't gamble with me again, she still can't bring herself to actually play the second game, or the third game. And that gets brought up later with Monyuta's thing, where it's like, you know, Monyuta talks about how she doesn't have the, uh, she doesn't have the power to, to get her, to reach her own goals. And with Yumiko's persuasion behind her, the interest in taking a risk that could, in fact, ruin her life. Yeah, well, and 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 even especially with Itsuki, uh, Yumiko presents it as like if you are trying to get to the top, then you have to be willing to risk it all, and that like that's what it means to do this. And it's really interesting, like the whole concept of like betting it all, and that each character, you know, betting it all is all of their money, which by extension, like for uh, Nishino Toen, it's like the, both her money and the well-being of her entire club for, you know, versus uh, versus Minuta, where he literally bets his life plan. He bets his entire life and control over his life. And it things just like escalate so much. And, and um, it is more than just death. Like Midari, the stakes are death. And Yumiko's like, no, they're not. Like, that's not, that's not right. So it's almost like death is not enough. Death to truly lose it all is, is, uh, worse than death, which is to lose control over your life, which is what the house pet system is. Yeah. And with Monyuta too, it's like, he is clearly willing to risk everything, but also he has no respect for others. So he lets down his guard when trying to deal with them, which is his ultimate undoing. So it's not just enough to be willing to bet everything. Yeah, characters are characters are punished by they're punished by not being willing to bet at all, to be on even ground. And they're also punished for 
for greed and hubris and selfishness, which causes them to make a mistake. Because mm-hmm. you see that with Yumemi, too, where she's like, oh, I'm going to set this up for this big dramatic comeback, and it just blows up in her face. Yeah, they're... Like, all the games and, and the, the whole show is about these really high highs and these really low lows. And um, I think it's the nature of gambling itself that, like, you couldn't make this show not be horny. Like, I think it's built into the whole thing of, like, if it's really random, then the satisfaction of winning is really pure and the satisfaction of losing is really pure. And it really, I think it all kind of, like, fits together as one overall thematic picture. All the parts kind of go together. So now, with that sort of preamble out of the way, let's discuss the themes that we saw within Kakegurui and sort of our takes on these different ideas. Um, well, we talked, we talked about, uh... We talked about betting at all. Um, another theme of the game, is, or I keep saying fucking game. Another theme of the story is obviously it's called compulsive gambler. Theme is insanity, madness, uh, those kind of words of of going crazy while gambling. And when characters go crazy, they they have contorted faces and they have light up eyes and everything gets scary and uh, it's great. And, you know, Yumiko talks about how, uh, in the first episode, Yumiko talks about how you have to be insane to gamble because, uh, in the capitalist world, money is life. And why would you gamble your life away? And she's like, and yet people flock to casinos. And so she's like, gambling is fundamentally insane. It's an insane act. And that it continues to be a, a thread throughout the, the show where the student council can't figure her out because she is not motivated purely by money. She has no self-interest. She is externally motivated and they 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 like they can't control someone like that because they don't because they don't know what she wants. They can't use what she wants to manipulate her. And to be fair, we also don't know what she wants like as a viewer. Yeah. As as a manga reader, we don't know what she wants. Yumiko is a, an agent of chaos like when characters say that she's insane, it's basically just like, oh, she can't be just roped down and, oh, she really wants power or she really wants money. She has her own goals in mind, which seem to be sort of like chasing a high as if there were nothing else going on. But like within that, she is disrupting this like microcosm sort of economy. Yeah. The fish tank. Yeah. And so much of it is sort of this push back against the crazy power imbalance that has been developed out of this house pet system, out of this, like, microcosm of the world. Yeah, even though she purports to not be interested in justice, Yumiko's idea of wanting things to be fundamentally fair, to be have the chances be equal between both parties, is uh, in parallel to the inherent power imbalance within the society of the school. And Yumiko wanting gambling to have equal stakes has the larger repercussion of wanting there to be equal stakes within the school. Um, and I think it's really interesting because it, there's very much like, it's, it's a show about bad people getting what they deserve. But Yumiko herself does not fundamentally believe that, that, that there's good and bad people and that they get what they deserve. Like, She's, like, just doing this because she wants to, 
And she she's not a, a hero of justice or anything like that. And I think that's really fascinating. Like, it's a, it's a really interesting sort of, there's a larger narrative theme of where you might feel like justice is being enacted, but none of the characters themselves are interested in justice. It's interesting you say that because there are two moments that are literally just Yumiko inciting self-justice onto people. Yeah. The first with Subomi in the game against June, where it's like, don't let him decide how you live your life. You, if you are given the opportunity to win here, then you need to take it for yourself. And we see that also with the way that Manyuta treats Itsuki as less than a person and sort of like, why don't you just like work with me? I'll take care of you, give you whatever you want. Just stay out of my way while, you know, while, while daddy does the work, basically. Yikes. And so, and so he clearly shows how much he doesn't care about her in that. And she takes that back. Thanks to Yumiko being like, y'all. Y'all. Uh, so Yumiko, uh, but also like, I think this is more in line with not necessarily Yumiko wanting to enact justice, but wanting the stakes, wants the, to level the playing field, right? So she's making the argument that, like, Subomi is not inherently inferior, um, and she should be playing on equal footing. She shouldn't be handicapping herself on purpose. And, like, Itsuki, she gets to determine her own worth, and it's, it's like a level playing field. But yeah, I think, I think it's interesting, and I wonder if there's not more character development for Yumiko herself over the course of the story that hasn't even been written yet, and how she, if maybe over time she changes how she feels about whether she's enacting justice. Yeah, because she seems to, like, just kind of accidentally do it. She stumbles into it really Mr. Magoo-style in her her, (laughs) her mad rush for power and gambling. (coughs) Oops, accidentally empowered this woman. Yeah. Yeah, she doesn't want to be in charge, she doesn't want to be the president. But it, it obviously matters to Yumiko that, like, Subomi fights back. But maybe perhaps she doesn't think that, like, uh, she's, like, fighting for self-determination. And that's another theme of this show, is control of your own life and self-determination. And Yumiko is, I think, seeking to give that to everyone. And, uh, versus Mary, who is very more directly involved, and her arc is taking control back over her own life. Right, Mary, the only main character with an arc. Yeah, and, and Mary, Mary's, like, values are that she wants to be in control of her own life. That's all that she wants, is the ability to determine the outcome of her own life. She doesn't, uh, you know, she is, she is still, all the characters on the, sh- on the show are villains, right? Like, she doesn't, she will still exploit people, like, she will still do whatever she can to get ahead, but she wants to do it because she chose to do it. And when... Kirari asks her to join the student council and she's like, you know, no, you don't want to do it. It's because, you know, you, you're too just of a person to do this. And, and she's like, I don't care about justice. And, um. Really, I just hate you more than I hate anyone else. Yeah. And despite herself, she finds herself as an executor of justice, just like Yumiko. So I do, I do wonder how that, how that arc will, will inevitably play out over the course of the whole story. Mm hmm. But but also Mary, she gets her power back and she denies the student council. So she doesn't cross that line of like, I'm going to use my power to like extort people and hurt people on like a global scale, at least a nationwide scale. Like she's like, I'll do my petty shit with like my classmates and stuff, but I'm not a super villain. I'm just a regular villain. 
Mm-hmm. So it shows that like you can be given that power and not be a supervillain. It like it almost like splits it out a little bit more finer tooth of like how the student council is still like they still made a choice of like I'm gonna I'm gonna go all the way to the top. I'm gonna use this power to get more power. And uh so it, it there's a lot of interesting little like subtleties in how people use the power that they're given and how much they exploit people based on how much power they have yeah it's such a big power play of like hubris against all of these different villains who for one reason or another like look down on others or just see themselves as so much higher than others that ultimately causes their downfall and some way worse than others like Manuta, who literally sold his life away whoops <laughs> yeah and versus like kiwatari he has almost no power right he has just a little bit of it and he just immediately blows up, right? Like, and is like, ah, oh, I can do whatever I want, ha ha ha. But he's not even on the student council. So it, it's def- different levels of power. And like, even he gets like, just like, he, he doesn't have that bad of like a fall, as it were. He just owes millions of yen, or no, hundreds of millions of yen. Yeah. So like, he still has sort of an out. He doesn't have an out. But like, in, if you look in comparison to that, to Itsuki potentially losing her business to Yumemi potentially losing all of the progress she's made in her attempt to become an award-winning actress. Like, you know, the the higher that these characters are in the in like the social ladder, the higher the stakes get for them such that their whole life could crumble around them. And sometimes it works out, like with Yumemi, because it's it's a personal thing instead of like that the the villains stick around after they're defeated also it humanizes them um they continue to exist after they're defeated and they continue to change and grow and it's it's just it's really cool that they that they're still there like that losing in the game like doesn't mean that they're just like explode into in team rocket away that they're still there in this world still existing in this system it it also sort of speaks to this idea of like you can be defeated but you're not out you're not out of the game yet and that also like you know getting back to our original point about fan service and and sexualized imagery in the show like it also shows that these are people like it's not villain of the week and then they're gone like these characters persist and continue to change and be involved as the story progresses and have to deal with their the the consequences of their mistakes yeah which is such a big thing. Which is great, right? Like, in a lot of shows, like any kind of show, um, once the villain is defeated, they're, like, gone, right? And, and like, this is, like, the show's, like, sort of the long-term consequences, especially, like, with Itsuki, of, mm-hmm. like, how she continues to be a part of the show and is part of helping Yumeko win. And she has, you know, she has this complex evolution over time of, like, all these things are happening and, like, how she reacts to them and how she keeps fighting back. And it's it's really cool. I I love that that because you know so many times you you get introduced to a villain in a show you like really like that villain and the villains sticking around and continuing to like fuck with each other after their arcs after they're defeated. I really enjoy like that they're still there. We still get to see what they're doing and what happens to them. So since we've gone over it a little bit. Let's talk about what the sexuality of Kakegurui actually does for the story and the way that it mis- mixes with the sort of psychological thriller 
genre that this, you know, series fits into. Well, I mean, gambling and power imbalance and, you know, all these things are inherently horny. So, so it all kind of works together. I mean, I, I, I know that there are, like, less horny gambling shows out there, but, like, I don't know. It just, it all kind of feels like, of course this show is horny. Like, look at it. And all the power dynamics, like, in the, and the it's it's like it sort of naturally lends itself to being to being sexual in nature. Yeah, I think it goes B to A instead of A to B. The mechanics of sexuality fit into the psychological aspects of gambling and not the other way around. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a show of, with a lot of like satisfying endings where people get what's coming to them and you're like, yeah, that's that worked out great. Uh, you know, like, haha, take that, especially about Yuda. Like, right? Like, by the end of it, it's so drawn out. By the end of it, you're like, fuck you, guy! And, um, and that's really, it's, you know, it's a horny show with satisfying endings. Well, but as you noticed here, uh, or as you noted here on the document, it's like, the satisfaction of winning is equated with a sort of sexual satisfaction, which is true. That's how they frame it within the anime, right? Is that when Yumiko wins, she has sort of the she has sort of her moment, as it were, her 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 glow, her climax, if you will. And when you see something like uh, Midari's, where she comes out of it kind of like completely dissatisfied with what Midari wants to do, she has none of that, and she immediately goes to find another gamble. So she finds a really unsatisfying partner. And goes to try to find someone else who can satisfy her desires. Yes, Midari's a selfish partner, yeah. And it plays into this idea that you want to remove sort of the unfair stakes, this imbalance of power, which is also presumably what you look for in a relationship is a balanced sort of 50-50 kind of look. Yeah, so for this show, like, being so horny and, like, having so many people getting topped constantly, as, you know, especially Suzui, like, it fundamentally has this theme that an imbalance of power is unsatisfying or unsexy. That, like, the, the sexiest thing is, is a balance between the two parties. And, uh, and it's, it's wild. Like, as, as we were sort of thinking about this and breaking it down, um, I wrote this down and it occurred to me how fucking wild that is. You know, like, cause there's so many things that, like, are, are horny about the show that are specifically uh, like one person imposing on another person, uh, but Yumiko is as a character coming through all of that and being like, "No, like the sexiest thing is respect. when both people are equals and and res- mutual respect." Turns my chair around. Hey, kids, Yumiko <laughs> Jabami here. The sexiest thing is mutual respect in a relationship. <laughs> Nothing sexier than appreciating your partner for who they are. <laughs> and. Again, we've talked about it a little bit with Midari, but the point of that thing is, like, the the idea of the gambling does not exist just to live out fantasies. Specifically, in Midari's case, the fantasy to die. So, like, the point is that both of you go in with the same idea of what's going to happen, and you both come out satisfied. And Midari says to Yumiko, like... I want you to, to take over my life. I want you to tell me what to do. I want you to rule over every aspect of my life, like, kind of kind of thing. And, uh, and Yuma goes, like, no. <laughs> you want me to do all this. You, you want all this for you. Like, you want me to kill you. But, I like, I, I don't have anything at stake here. And then as soon as it's like, 
oh, you're just like the president. It's like the things that match between the president and that is the is this sort of like untouchable sort of like power that they exude. Mm-hmm. And Madari wants that for selfish purposes and sort of instead of actually respecting it, which she says she does, at least for the president. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and in general, I think Madari, even though like, I think Madari, like orgasming on camera is inappropriate and does not need to be in the show. It, you could have the same effect without the visual and the sound. And we'll, and we'll talk <laughs> about it. But that's not the case in all of the adaptations. So this is an anime-only thing. Again, flaunting the fact that this is not on broadcast television. Yeah, but her purpose in the story, in a larger sense, is that she is a very cynical read on Yumiko, and and Yumiko and Suzui's relationship, and really the show as a whole. Like, Midari's read on Yumiko feels very much like somebody saying, like, oh, well, this show is just horny. This is like, I, this, you're watching this because you want a hot statistician to top you. And to which I would say, first of all, <laughs> don't kink shame First of me. all, leave your horny at the door. And second of all, Yumiko explicitly refutes that, right? Like, she is presented with this situation that is like, is this all, isn't this what you want? And she's like, no, this isn't what I want at all. I want the stakes to be even. Me and Suzui are friends. He's not my lackey. And so that cynical take on the sh- the themes of the show is refuted in the show. Now, do I think any of this is on purpose? Not yes. entirely. But I think that that's, that's sort of the effect that it has. I think some of it's on purpose and it happens to snowball into other things that maybe weren't intended. Yeah. Before you said it, I was thinking, oh... Midari is just an audience surrogate for the kind of people who read this just for the boobies. Yeah, I mean, that could be, that's a read on it, too. I think that's valid, because it's refuting you, the the audience member who's like, I'm just in this to get topped. It's like, no, like, please engage with this more. And then going forward, the story is like, this is especially not for you. We're going balls deep into the gambling. Thank you. Time to play Uno. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, I think that may be not intentional, but it is still a read of sort of, like, the way in which these characters embody these different ideas of, you know, balance and order. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's interesting. Yeah, I think, I think that a lot of the themes we talked about aren't necessarily, like, built in as much as, like, it's a perspective that is reflected by it. Like, I, yeah, it's, it's not, like, I think when you, when you analyze stuff, you can kind of, like, speak as if like there was more intent behind the the writer than maybe there actually was but we're just trying to describe like the the effect accurately also you'll note that all of the men are the worst in this series we have three of them right well okay so i'm not i i forgot to count ryota because i forgot he existed but when you look at like the (laughs) villains that we fight against we have june right who is an abuser (laughs) Yeah, Kiwatari is a piece of shit. And we have like, Manyuta, who is a groomer. Yeah, like, Kiwatari is like a violent chauvinist, and Manyuta is like a, a calculating manipulator, and Suzui is an untoasted piece of bread. He doesn't exist. And I, this pulls away from the sexuality, but the psychological part shows that sort of like, you know, being able to, under that sort of relationship, find the inner strength to sort of fight against that and reclaim individuality, you know, to decide for yourself what your life's going to be like. 
Yeah, it definitely feels like like it definitely feels like more. Like I, I what I like is about the show. Yeah, it's it feels like it's not just all like mostly women as a as a sex thing, and more like the the few men that are in it are sort of these like encapsulations of stereotypes of certain types of men. Mm-hmm. And it's like it's that same thing of like, oh, are you going to walk out of the cage when they open the door? Like. It sort of reinforces this larger narrative of this dystopia that is a reflection of our own society and uh, all the ways that people are oppressed. And uh, and especially because this is a mostly women cast that like, it's interesting that that was the choice, the choice that's made. I mean, I guess it could also just be here's some guys in there, but mostly women because we're horny, but, uh, but it, it creates an interesting effect on, on the overall story. It's, it's definitely like mostly a story about women and women and power dynamics. And you'll notice that all of the men that are recognized as like good people are the idol fans who would do anything for a woman and like have no agency <laughs> of their own. I don't know if they're, I don't think they're, they're called good. Um, I, I almost feel like the idol fans are, are held up as a little too pathetic. Oh, for um, sure. When it is actually somewhat of an act of mercy and forgiveness to continue to support Yumemi. So it is, ad- it, I think it's, it is more admirable than perhaps the show, uh, portrays it. Mm-hmm. And you can see these same sort of themes in, um, the, the artist Toru Naomura's first work, uh, Shisarakuen, which is the same sort of thing where it's like, there is a female character who is sort of ripping uh, apart these unbalanced, unhealthy relationships and sort of like teaching the women in the relationship how to better like assert uh, individuality and, you know, garner respect. And it's like, oh, that's really interesting, which is way sloppier than how Kakegurui does it, which is fucked up to think about because Kakegurui is sloppy as hell. <laughs> but yeah, it's, you see the same that's sort of interest. Yeah, that's definitely in the same theme. That's cool. Yeah, so like it seems it seems like at least the artist has like a has a history in this sort of thing. So I think that not an all of interest in telling those kinds of stories. Right. So I think that it's not unintentional that this is the situation mm-hmm. th- that these are the sorts of things we're pulling from it. Yeah. It's good I you know and and because of these things because of these subtleties and themes in the show that go beyond it just being horny like that's why it's good, and that's why I enjoy it. Like, that's that's why I like it, and, like, I gotta say, like, I'm not really the type of person who uh, will just watch a horny anime for the sake of it, like, uh, and so I was kind of surprised that this appealed to me so much at first, and it's it's because there's more to it, and the horniness just kind of makes it fun, and, like, the taboo aspect of it, like, makes it exciting sometimes. But it's got more to it. It's got, like, some some stuff that you can actually, like, latch onto and, like, digest. And uh, and if it was just, like, titty anime of the week, then I, I would be bored with it very quickly. And I wouldn't be on this podcast. <laughs> and in addition, like, the gambling manga genre. Very small. Also pretty bad. <laughs> and that's how I got into it, is sort of like, oh, this is a gambling thing, and it seems like it's actually pretty well done. So, like, it is outside of the sexuality that drew me in, but it does play into these themes in a way that is more interesting than, say, like, a gamble fish or something of that same sort of type. 
Yeah, this is not a show that you're going to be like, oh, I really like how complex the gambles are or how interesting the games are. Like, the games are very much meant to be understood. I mean, even the manga and the show both regularly employ, like, diagrams and visual aids to explain the games. Like, you, you're meant to be playing along at home. Also, my favorite thing about it, the games are short. They last a chapter, maybe two, and they do not fuck around a lot. I think part of that is because of the simplified state of the games, and therefore the simplified way in which they are played. Yeah. And that's a benefit when, like, I may really appreciate Kaiji, but that guy has spent, like, five years in the same game. It's a lot. <laughs> and there's always new games, and yeah, the games are interesting, but they're not so complex that they are the focus of the story. Like, I think the focus of the story is this struggle for self-determination. Yeah. And, uh, and control. To make a comparison that maybe you won't understand, these games are not systematically difficult to understand. Like, they are very structurally simple. It is the ways in which they are played that becomes interesting, the dynamic between the players. And in that way, it feels a lot like, say, Liar Game, where, like, they, they have a huge arc that's just playing musical chairs, but it's the... <laughs> what? It, it is musical chairs on... <laughs> and, like, um, okay, so imagine Player Unknown's Battlegrounds. I'm there. A hundred soldiers are dropped onto an island, and on the island, there are... 99 chairs. Oh my god. And so... Wait, I'll, I'm gonna watch that after this, y'all. It's a manga only, but it's good. Um, I, I suggest you all <laughs> read Liar Game. It's really fun. But the idea is basically that in oh these teams, you are expected to find these chairs across this island, protect them, and be able to, you know, as they remove chairs from the game, and as this goes through, be able to, like, take your team to the top. It's really cool. So, like, it doesn't have to be the most complex game to be interesting. The fact that they're taking twists on common games makes it more engaging because you already know half of the rule set and the other half comes from the unique way in which it's played. Uh, I put this note down here. Is there anyone worth rooting for in the discussion? And you know what? It's Mary, yes. But, and we've talked about this a lot, but looking at the rest of the cast... Everyone else is either chaotic in a way that makes them unrelatable, <laughs> or they're actually bad people. So, although Mary is not the, the primary focus of the manga, Mary is the most character of all of them, and I think that's what makes her so relatable, is like, she's just a person who wants power. We can all relate to that. And... Mary is slighted by the fact that that is taken away, her agency is taken away from her at any point and wants to get back at the system that would be built to do that. That doesn't make her good, but I think she is the most worth rooting for of the cast. Yeah, she's Mary's the most relatable, and she's even the fan favorite in that poll that you. Linked. Yeah, so a, a Japanese poll was done to figure out what who the favorite characters are, and Mary ends up at number one. You know, clearly, people have good taste. Mary's the best. I love Mary. And then the other ones, for the most part, are other characters that have been built up in some way. Because it's Kirari, it's Sayaka, it's um, the vice president. 
and Yumiko. So it's clear that the characters that are more interesting are, the, first of all, the ones that are focused on, but second of all, the ones that are given something for the fans to latch onto, whether it be like, you know, Kirari or Yumiko, where it's like the fact that they are so mysterious and are set up as, you know, the major players in the game makes them interesting. But you have like Sayaka, who in the game immediately preceding the anime gets a lot of development and we understand her character and her very simple, almost pure goals. Yeah, Sayaka's great. And at the top is Mary, who literally we know just wants agency and that's enough. And the fact that she's like, she's willing to be a little underhanded about it, but she's also fallen into sort of this like taking all of the people above her down a notch by bringing them down to her level. In the same way that kind of Yumiko yeah, does. Yeah, Mary's not above the system in which she finds herself. And I think that's, like, another thing in this show. Like, why is it... Why why are we able to root for characters in this show when they're all villains that are part of this corrupt system? And I think it's because, especially Mary, she owns the fact that she is part of this unjust world. And she's like, I am part of this too. Like, and, and the way she, she acts and the things that she's willing to do. She's not above it all. And, uh, and I think that also makes her relatable, and, and it makes her actions cathartic. Mm -hmm. And lastly, I'd like to discuss, because I, I felt watching this that this was a very big thing on how someone would consume this story. Let's talk about the adaptation differences between the manga, the anime, and the previously mostly unmentioned J-drama, which came out the same year, I think almost immediately after the anime finished airing. Yeah, and it just went on Netflix in, like, the month right. of May. Right, it hit Netflix, um, the anime hit Netflix, the manga is available through Viz, so all of these are legally available right now for you to join. So let's talk about the pros and cons of each of them, because one thing I want to note about the manga is the anime is way more sexualized than the manga is. Yeah, and we kind of touched on this already. Just, like, I think in addition to it just, like, being horny, right? Like, the opening and closing is horny, some of the camera shots are horny that are not in the manga, although there are horny shots in the manga. Like, seeing it in motion and, like, this music and the whole, like, media, like, the multimedia experience of it, I think is, like, just inherently hornier. Because I, I watched the anime and then I read the manga... And, like, a lot of it is, like, a shot-for-shot, line-for-line recreation of the manga. And I was really not expecting it to be so very close. But also, like, no one jacks off in the manga. Um, yeah. <laughs> the sexual, like, satisfaction of gambling, and specifically the way Midari handles sort of the playing Russian roulette with herself, is much more treated like a, like a, a high more than it is like an orgasm. Yeah, and, and like, and Yumiko, like, Yumiko, like, gets turned on by, like, the prospect of gambling in the manga as well, and does some of the same things in, like, poses where she squishes her boobs together and stuff like that. But, but yeah, yeah, the, I think Madari in particular is taken to uh, a more, a more intense level than in the manga. And, uh, and I, I think, it's I I don't like it. I wish it I wish it wasn't there. I think it could be accomplished without this this high school student orgasming on a table. Yeah, I, it was the thing 
originally that kind of turned me off from watching more of it is the way that they turned that up. But also, like, I get it because it does play into the themes just the same way as, like, making it a high is, but it's, like, more extreme. Again, because they don't have to fucking put this on broadcast TV. Yeah, it's more literal. Yeah. Like, it doesn't need to be this literal. Like, I think this, these themes are present in the manga, obviously, but it's not as literal. Yeah, and so the manga, and I think another thing is, like, the manga has a much more consistent art style. Like, even when they get sort of the gross faces, nothing contorts the same way as the anime. The anime takes that and, like, notches it up two or three times to the point where they are basically, like, it feels like they're using effects in the same way that, like, they're, like, morphing things in ways that is inhuman, where the manga keeps it strictly yeah. to, not perfectly, but mostly human replicable, like, faces and reactions. Yeah, I like that the anime does it more over the top, though. I, I like that about it. I like it in places, but I don't like how often the anime does it. Oh, I love that. Like, I want it to be always that. <laughs> It supports the whole thing of, like, let's gamble like crazy. Like, the whole, that whole thing um, of distorted reality and on all that stuff. I, I just really like it. I, that's, like, part of it, part of the, the extreme changes in art style are what, like, initially attracted me to the show. Mm -hmm. And, you but there is, like, a consistency to the art style in the manga that is, like, nice. Is, like, appreciated on a purely aesthetic level. Yeah, I mean, it's a different, it's a totally different requirement to communicate, like, what's going on, because it's mostly in black and white, and it's just a different, it's a different method of communicating stuff, mm -hmm. you know, sequential art versus animation, and uh, so it's not like the manga, like, doesn't succeed or doesn't feel as intense or anything like that. It still feels very intense. Oh, also, while you're reading the manga, you can listen to the Kakagurui anime soundtrack in the background, which is what I did, which was also great. So, a couple things I wanted to note about the anime. Uh, it makes Runa way more of a goblin. Like, I, I can mm -hmm. deal with her way more when she doesn't have a voice, doesn't move. <laughs> I love Runa. And is less contrasted against the other characters because I hate her so much. I, I I don't know why. Maybe you have too much in common with her. You know, you ever think about yeah, that? That's, Maybe well, what you hate look, in her is what you see, what you dislike about yourself. You mean the fact that I own a Vita. I get it. Funny. Yes, yes, that but, was gonna be. <laughs> <laughs> wow, great joke. No, but like, I, <laughs> like, it does enhance some characters that they have voice acting and stuff. I think Runa is just the one that, for me, like, really loses... I'm really stunned that you dislike Runa. Like, I like Runa a lot. Like, she's so she's so deeply annoying, but like, all all these characters deserve it. Is is kind of the thing that I feel with Runa. Agree to disagree about Runa. So the other thing I wanted to say about the anime is the soundtrack is interesting. Um, first of all, I want to read off the the name of the group who did all the music for it because it's still my favorite. Japanese music <laughs> name in in the industry right now, which is Techno Boys Pullcraft Green Fund. But um, they, in general, for other work, are very like synth heavy kind of stuff. And the way in which they put together the music for Kake Garui is really interesting because I feel like a lot of it is sort of like what you would expect out of like a slice of life high school anime soundtrack. But because of the instruments and synths that they use for it. It almost 
sounds like kind of a perversion of that. Yeah. Which plays into sort of the themes of that. Like, so much about it is like, it is technically sound, but something about it is a little bit off every time you're listening to it during like a normal session. And when it comes to like the gambles and stuff where it gets more intense, works very well. Yeah, and there's a lot of, like, uh, chaotic horn sounds, like a lot of, like, freeform jazz kind of kind of sounds mm-hmm. and stuff um, that happen. And it's just, like, it's the perfect soundtrack for what's going on. I, I really feel like the, the music really adds to the experience. Yeah, so it's, it's going to be a gamble <laughs> uh, on whether or not you appreciate the manga or the anime more. But if the thing that is stopping you is the sexuality of the show, give the manga a shot if you're still interested in what the series does. Like, I think yeah. that's sort of that. That's sort of the big killer in terms of it, is the anime really wants that to be at the max level the whole time. It never wants you to forget that it's horny. And the manga... Yeah. It, 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 more, likes to, it, it more likes to remind you that it's horny. Like, oh yeah! It's like passively horny, yeah, versus the show, the anime is actively horny. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And then there's the live action J-drama, which I only got the chance to watch a couple episodes of, but... It's great. If you like the cheese of sort of like Japanese children's entertainment acting, like a common writer or something like that, this is an easy recommend because it is just that yeah it's it's amazing if you don't like reading but you but you don't want to watch the anime then watch the j-drama the j-drama is so good the j-drama is such a bananas interpretation of the original material but because it's real human people like the the threats of sexual violence that kiwatari makes like the, the sexual parts of it are totally stripped out because these are hu- real human beings. And, like, the, the teeth are kind of taken out of the show a little bit, which you could argue is to its detriment, but I think um, in the world that is created by the J-drama, like, it works. Also, Suzui is actually a good character on that show. He is just as over-the-top as everyone else. J-drama Suzui is now the Suzui of my heart. I mean, a, a number of its characters, in fact, have acted in Common Writer, and it comes through in the way that they are, they are very over the top in sort of a way of making up for the fact that they cannot do the sexual part of Kakegurui. I don't yeah. think the freakouts are as good, but I think everything else- Well, yeah, because they're else, human people. Yeah. But they try to reach that same sort of level, which is sort of the issue. Yeah, and they do, they do, like, do a little, just a smidge of uh, visual effects. But I think where it comes to the way that the characters interact within the story, it is much better. Where uh, I talked about it earlier with anime, I wish that it broke the third wall, or the fourth wall more, as sort of this um, stylistic choice to make sure that the audience is involved in learning this does that in spades where... Yeah, it really feels like a play. Yeah. Yeah, Suzumi is a character who speaks to the audience. He explains everything to the audience and then kind of lets the description to other characters go through. Like, it takes the fact that so much of this happens in the heads of other characters and removes that. And like, uh, Satome Mary in the first uh, 
in the first game where in the anime she like speaks to the cam- uh, the camera about the fact that she's got this cheat it's doubly done in the, the live action where like there's literally two versions of her one that is like you know her physical form which is sort of fronting and her inner monologue jumps out of her body to like yell at Yumeko, you know, and spit in her face and like talk to the audience. It's like a play. Like she snaps, the lighting changes, everyone on stage or everyone there freezes and then she does her monologue and then she snaps again and the lighting goes back to normal and everyone resumes. Like a lot of it feels like in terms of production, like a YouTube fan video of Kakegurui. But I, I think that was such a such a, a great decision of like how to represent those monologues and that inner thing where they talk about how they're cheating. It, but it really it really is it feels like a play, and I feel like that actually kind of elevates it a little bit. Like I, I like that a lot. It benefits from the fact that Kakegurui is really simple on its surface, so that it doesn't have to have like any of these elaborate sets or anything. It can really focus on the production. Although I would have liked it if they had a little bit more elaborate sets. <laughs> uh, sorry, it's a live-action television show based on a manga. <laughs> that nobody cares about. Well, just that isn't, like, <laughs> it is not accessible, <laughs> therefore. God, uh, but it is, it is funny. Like, some of the, a lot of the lighting is, like, we just found an actual, like, business building and like administration building like in an old architectural style and like tried to make it look like a school but the hallways are the wrong size and uh the classrooms are just meeting rooms that we have put desks in and like a bunch of like candelabras (laughs) and i i love it i i think it's it's great so as long as you enjoy the campy nature of like live action dramatic television and specifically in the way that, like, Japanese TV does it. Because there, there isn't exactly a, a one-to-one comparison to the way that American TV works. Like, at the closest, it's sort of like soaps, you know? But it's, it, mm-hmm. it has a degree of sort of legitimacy to it above soaps. Yeah, it's not quite a soap opera, but it's almost a soap opera. So, I understand that that is a very particular taste that does not necessarily match up with manga or anime but if you want if you appreciate that and you want to see kakegurui's story completely stripped of its most problematic elements (laughs) then the j-drama works and of what little i've seen of it it is a much slower more methodically paced adaptation as well which doesn't really matter but like it takes a lot of time to build its world in a way that, like, it is distinct from the other adaptations. And it also, yeah, and it also does a lot more, like, it puts a lot of pieces in place, like, instead of just saying, like, oh, Kiwatari is a bully, they show him being a bully before he is involved in the the debt game. And, and, and little things like that, where they, like, establish these things like in the world versus uh where in the manga and the anime they just say that those things have happened and uh and it's cool it it feels richer in that way it's it's wild i i really enjoy the campy live action j drama as much as i love the true version of of the story 
the the J drama version is is really f- is is fun. Though let me tell you, the the gravest sin that Kakegurui the J drama commits is that it doesn't make uh, Mary blonde. They give eh. white hair to Kirari, but they're not like, oh, we we can't own a blonde oh. wig. Yeah, I don't know. I, yeah, I don't know what 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 the deal is with that. I think it looks good on the actress who plays Mary, so I can forgive it. But like, yeah, I don't know why she has brown hair instead of blonde. No, it looks fine, but it's but it's just like why why is that particular change made? Yeah, I do wonder about that because all the other ones are so accurate. Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. But also, the president in the J drama is unvoiced and constantly in silhouette. And when she speaks, it is by title card. And wow, that's how could you make it more extra? It, it's filmed like a Power Rangers story. Yeah, it's really good. It's so funny. God, I, I love it. And they show like like the scene where, oh, I don't know if you've gotten to this part. They show the scene where Karari was gambling with the, the previous president and won, and then he immediately jumps out the window, <laughs> and it shows, like, this little silhouette of, like, Wilhelm screaming out this window. <laughs> That's an interesting change, because I believe the, the previous president was a uh, female in the yeah in the anime manga. <laughs> That's That's pretty cool, though. So that's all we really want to discuss in terms of, like, the, the themes of the story. In conclusion, like, I mean, clearly we talked about this a lot, therefore we must enjoy it. But, like, Kakegurui is, I think, a good adaptation of a manga that is very hard to sell, and they somehow made it harder to sell. But, like, <laughs> if you enjoy the elements of it, like, if you enjoy the gambling aspect, I think all the other stuff sort of, like, falls into place as something that you could kind of look away from, as it were. Like, that's certainly what I did when I started the manga, is sort of, like, at its most horny, I was kind of like, okay, well, I can skip through this pretty fast. That's a little harder with the anime, but still. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it, I think the horniness is part of it. It's, it's, it's part of the package. If you don't, if you don't want to engage with that type of media, um, damn, it's been three hours. But... <laughs> But cool, thanks for sticking with us. Um, but you probably don't want to don't, don't want to engage with this any further. It's not perfect, obviously, but I really enjoy it. I'm like an accidental Kakegurui super fan. Like the more that I engage with it, the more that I read and watch, it's just really appealing. And uh, it's not perfect, but it's it's just a really appealing story, and uh, th- some of the themes are so appealing of like free will and fighting for control of your own life, and taboo, horny gambling. Like all of it is interesting. Like the villains continuing to evolve as characters, it's really compelling. And I've I've like already like convinced some other people to watch it, and they were like, oh, "I'm so glad that you recommended." So I had no idea that this was this was here because nobody does. So I think uh, it's a fun show, and it is, uh, yeah, it's not perfect, but I really like it. Yeah, I, it's, especially in the world of, like, gambling manga, as it were, like, it is a breath of fresh air just because the games are simple, the cheats are simple, the solutions are simple, all of it's very easy to follow and understand, and it's appreciated. And to quote this uh, Netflix review I found of the series. God. 
If you find woman coming offensive, this one is not for you. I mean, they did say woman, but they are high school students also, like... Yeah, that, that, that is part of it too, which is like, that is also a turnoff, I understand, of the series. Yeah, I feel like a lot of it is like sufficiently abstracted, at least in the first arc of the, of the story, the first season. It's like sufficiently abstracted from the real world that you can kind of forget that they're supposed to be like high school students versus like being in some kind of purgatory. Like, I remember the first time I watched it, like, when Karari left, I was like, they could leave? Like, what? Is this a real school? Like, I, it's just, it's almost not. Like, it's it's almost so abstract that nobody nobody feels like a, a real person or, like, a real high schooler. Right, and, like, the, the way in which they are, like, perversions of anime tropes, and, like, you expect these characters to be this way, but they're, like, way different either in extremity or just like you know changing your expectations like it's fun to watch how these characters develop yeah the characters are interesting i think that's just at the end of the day it's compelling because it has interesting characters and characters that i want to see what happens to them plain and simple yeah before we go there's some fan mail that we can answer from the fans. Okay. So this one we've already discussed a little bit. This is from friend of the show QB. First question, was there any moment of Kakagurui that personally got under your skin or disgusted you? Uh, the part where Midari uh, comes on screen. Well, mostly on screen. Yeah, that would be it. It was gross. I watched this whole thing with Sid like, me and Sid watched all of Kakegurui together, and that was the one moment where we as friends were like, oops, we're watching porn together now. Sorry, my bad. It's a very excessive scene in a way that pushes a lot of boundaries. Yeah, but that was it. <laughs> but also is easy to pretend it didn't happen because it kind of comes and goes. Yeah, I feel like the the, the scene where Kiwatari uh, threatens Yumiko, where Kiwatari's like, oh, well, you know... It's subbed as, like, I'll violate you then, if you, like, if you won't do what I ask. And uh, I was really worried that that was going to escalate, but it stopped there. So it wasn't, um, it wasn't, a, like, a hard out for me. It's still not great in a series that, like, so eschews that sort of, like, sexual threat. Yeah. Yeah, all the, like, when the president talks to Mary, she, like, is kind of on top of her with her uh, knee between Mary's legs. Like, that's very obvious, like, what that imagery is. Um, but, like, that's sort of the rest of the show, is, like, that kind of, like... Domination. It's not literally what's happening. Like, Kirari is not advancing sexually on Mary in that way. Like, she's not threatening to assault Mary. Right. It's, it is it is just a position of domination. Yeah, and, and so it is odd that it is so, like, literal when it comes to Kiwatari. Yeah, it is a little mm -hmm. out of character, I think, for the way that it's set up. I would, I would like it if it stayed more abstract, because it seems to be otherwise dealing in the abstract. Uh, second question, uh, for Chorps, because I know he read this, why is Gamblefish scummier than Kakegurui? Okay, so, quick background, Gamblefish is a manga that came out before Kakegurui that is very much the same idea in that it is gambling high school but the main character is a male who has come 
to sort of disrupt this world. And the thing that makes it scummier is that this main character is treated as the most badass dude in the world. Every time he defeats <laughs> a, a woman in a gamble, they immediately fall in love with him and become part of his weird harem. And oh, they are no. treated as sex objects after he beats them. Oh God! So this is like a this is like a fucking like sapiosexual fantasy I'm hearing of like wow you outsmarted me now I'm yours. Yes, and it's worse because the gambles are bad as well and scummier than Kakegurui. Kakegurui, they solve a cheat, right? The cheat is against them and they solve it. What Gamblefish does for at least the first like thirty chapters is it presents a situation in which someone who is genuinely better at whatever the event is than the main character, uh, they challenge them to the thing that they're good at. And what he does is he literally cheats to win. He can't beat someone at card manipulation. Mm. So what he does is he takes a chainsaw to one of his fingers and pulls it off so that he bleeds all over the cards to make it so that he has an upward advantage. <laughs> Because he can then okay. figure out which cards are, you know, are of a particular type or not. Or, like, he'll play pool against someone. And the, what he does is he gets a cheat pool stick, right? Like, his pool cue has, like, hydraulics in it to make the shot better. He um, sets up the... <laughs> he sets up <laughs> the game so that it happens in the middle of a storm, then turns off the air conditioning so that the felt of the pool table it will, like, will be affected by humidity and then fuck up the other person playing so that he can cheat his way to victory. It's so unsatisfying and so, like, gross. Yeah, and it's it, interesting because that is, like, in juxtaposition to Kakegurui, which, like, speaks to it is only satisfying when people are evenly matched, and, like, this is, yeah, so it makes sense that that would feel unsatisfying. And then, by the end, all of Gamblefish is just like, here are a bunch of games that are, like, literally life or death and you know that he's gonna win them all because he's a stupid main character so none of them have any teeth to them uh though uh barack obama does show up and lose one of the matches <laughs> so like i guess there's that uh, nanny <laughs> but like gamblefish also like in its inserts will draw cheesecake art of its characters which kakegurui for all of its faults does not do None of the characters mm. in the inserts or on the covers of these books are anything less than fully clothed. That's true. Yeah. So Gamblefish is some horse shit. I'm glad I finally got to air my dirty laundry about it. <laughs> I think it's also an interesting example of like sexualized versus sexy, right? Like mm -hmm. Kageguri has a lot of sexy elements to it, which don't necessarily mean that the characters are in bikinis. Uh, you know, like it's interesting. Right, uh, yeah, and Gamblefish is like, literally this man wins a harem of women by cool. cheating them right. out of their- out of their own games of skill. <laughs> yeah, like, it's so interesting because, like, in Kakegurui, like, none of the women are property, and, um, but the threat is of becoming property, right? Like, that's the threat. Right, and even when they are property, the point is that they are removed from that space yeah and and the and when you're a house pet you're fighting to get control back over your life so it's fundamentally saying like fundamentally human beings are not property or prizes to be won or whatever and even when they're put in that position that it, they're still people 
Um, yeah. So, great. Then, the final question from QB is, for both of us, what is a series that you consider scummier or grosser than Kakegurui and why? And I assume... (laughs) I, my assumption is that this would be things that we like, because I could just rattle off all the worst things I could think of, and that's not interesting. Or something, I guess, within the yeah. same genre, as it were, where it's like a psychological sort of thriller kind of thing. That's as as scummy or gross or worse. Yeah. Because you don't like Gamblefish, right? Like No. <laughs> so, that doesn't help. Right, so I, I'm actually going to go look through a list of all the things I've watched real quick. All right, I'll go first. Um, so recently, me and my friend Bean Splash watched through all the Fate anime so that we could understand what was going on on our Twitter timelines. I can't say that I understand what's going on my Twitter uh, <laughs> timeline, especially much more. You just recognize the characters. Yeah. Um. So, Fate is bad. <laughs> like... Fate is, fate is trash. There are children who are abused and their abusers are not sufficiently punished and often not punished at all. It is complete garbage. Fate, especially Fate Zero. I just, it, it was utterly unacceptable to me. Like, there were so many parts of that show that I really liked. And then there were some parts of it that just made it irredeemable. Like, I feel like I could never watch it again. I would have to just watch a supercut, if you're familiar with the show folks at home, of just Iskandar and Waverly and no other characters, especially not the whole Mato thing, like what happens to Sakura Mato. It's utterly disgusting to me. So I'm in, in like a weird place with fate because there are parts of it that were compelling and there were parts of it that are just utterly irredeemable. And that's like a mainstream anime that a lot of people know and tons of people have watched. And it, yeah, it's just, it's just a whole nother level. I'm trying to think about this and like, certainly I've watched worse things, but that's not the question. In terms of just actually like scummier, uh, I, I feel like that implies a menace to it in a way that like, I don't seek out that sort of media and I don't watch it like as an ironic thing for sure. Yeah, like I didn't watch Fate specifically because it had scummy things in it. Like I didn't know that that was going to happen. That was a surprise for me. That was not good. <laughs> like I don't think Utena is scummier than this, though it does handle much more taboo subjects. So I don't think that's quite right. And like there's punchline, but I feel like punchline is overall like a more innocent sort of sexuality, so it's not like scummy. It's not like super off-putting in that same way. So I don't think yeah. I can think of a thing I have watched that is on the same sort of degree as Kakegurui. Would you say that, where would you say that Kageguri was on, like, the spectrum of horny anime that you've watched? Like, is it, is it definitely- The anime one of, or like, the manga? Um, I mean, whichever, however you want to place it, like, uh, positive or negative of just, like, the source material being as sexual as it is, um... Because I think, for me, it's definitely on the more sexual side of stuff that I usually watch. I would almost say 
it would peak in a lot of ways, just because I don't tend to uh, experience a lot of media that has a lot of sexuality to it. In terms of, like, genuine, like, raw sexuality, I think this is, in a lot of ways, the peak. Maybe only contested by Yurikuma Arashi, which is the least subtle sort of, like, exploration of lesbians, maybe in the world. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I almost feel like the fact that we enjoyed this show... Is an anomaly. Like, shows how much more it is than just being horny fan service. Because Mm -hmm. we're not the type of people who enjoy things that are just, like, sexy for the sake of being sexy. There has to be something else to it. It has to have a purpose. Yeah, like, there was a point in the life of Coco Disaster where a gimmick of the show is that all of the hosts would watch one just actually, like, bad sort of fan service show each season, and it's really draining, so I've stopped that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. It's very, like, emotionally and psychologically draining to watch, like, an empty, horny anime. So, I guess, technically, I have watched two things scummier or grosser than Kakegurui. Um, there's Testament of Sister New Devil, and there's um, Isuka was the other one. And, like, yeah, so, I I have watched them, but I don't think about them, and if it were something I was going to watch, I think Kakegurui is the absolute upper limit of how that type of content would be for me to watch it. Yeah, and, like, as Date Night fans know, like, my taste is definitely hornier than Chorps Away's taste, so, like, this all checks out. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, From Onlaren, we get probably something we'll go over in the episode. I'm not sure exactly if we did. Do you think the show does a good job at making the stakes feel real for the gambling matches? And insofar in that you believe that these characters are putting their life on the line, yes, as far as, like, relatability absolutely not they are talking about numbers yeah much too large to be relatable but you i get the good idea that they are dealing with numbers that would upset some nations and they are gambling on it for a single life and also the the like the life plans especially like it's uh, it's not relatable but it is like the life plan speaks to a deep-seated fear that people have and so in that way, it is relatable, but like, it's like, it's not relatable because I'm like, oh, I can imagine that happening to me, right? Like, no, of course not. Right. So I think the stakes do feel real, but they don't feel, they don't feel understandable, I don't think. Like, mm-hmm. and that, I think that's part of it is how crazy it is that they would do this. It does. Yeah. And it, but it doesn't like, it doesn't take me out of the show. Like, it doesn't make me like roll yeah, my no. eyes and, and sit back from the show and be like, oh, this is a contrivance. Like. It feels like these consequences will be enacted in the world that they live in. Mm-hmm. Um, then we have one from Psychobabble who notes, there's something that's very much distilled anime in making a huge deal out of otherwise mundane things like games. What would be Kakegurui's unique voice in comparison to other Ludo-focused series like Kaiji, Liar's Game, Yu-Gi-Oh!, etc.? The, the thing about the world of Kakegurui is that this is only allowed to happen at this school, and because this school has been built as sort of, like, the testing ground for the next generation of, like, power players in this society. Yeah. 
like Japanese culture is going to be decided by whoever comes out of on top of that school. So it's not the same as like a Yu-Gi-Oh where it's like a worldwide phenomenon. And it technically has a much larger scale than something like Kaiji or Liar's Game where it that is a game about individuals and understanding human psyche when pushed to their limits. This is in canon it is presented as something much more interested in sort of defining the important people in the universe. Mm-hmm. So it it is very different in that it it has a consequence to it that is not seen in a lot of other series like this, where it's like, if you are the student council president, you might end up prime minister of Japan or something. You know, this is this is the thing that leads to success, ultimately. Yeah, and it's also, like, it's power, but it's not, like, a very, like, well-defined power. Like, in a lot of stuff, it's like, oh, well, you're gonna take over the world or take over this company. But, like, it's because it's, like, high school, it's more abstracted than that. It is more, like, something good's gonna happen to you, fill in the blank here, which I think gives it, like, a... It makes the fear more visceral, and I like that a lot about it. Mm-hmm. And final question, I get, I'm going to combine both of these, fr- one from The Toughest Bean and one from Shinaldrak. And both of them are basically about, d- do we find the male gaze part of it off-putting? And is do you think the show is rendered less interesting by uh, the idea of like removing sexuality from the series? I feel like we've talked about this a lot throughout the entire episode. I think it's it's worth just explicitly saying, like, I also appreciate some of the horny shots in this show. Like, I'm at a point in my life where when I see the anime titties bouncing, I'm not like, ew, this is an affront to women. I'm that, and I'm also like, nice. So, <laughs> Kakegurui is very <laughs> inclusive in who it's making this fan service for, just because so many of the conflicts are. Uh, female on female. And you could see that as a male gaze thing, but I think the way in which all of the male characters have their nuts destroyed consistently, <laughs> um, it helps to kind of push that particular part away. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I, yeah, there's the, the, not all the sexualized elements I felt, I, I feel, I did not feel like a lot of the sexual elements were like, separate from me it didn't like push me out of it 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 didn't make me go like oh this isn't for you actually like it just it just made me go like nice (laughs) and like i i'm definitely more critical of it just in the type of media that i tended to consume it's like oh this doesn't feel out of place where like kakegurui feels like it is built to be this sort of thing and happens to also be entertaining outside of that right like I think we've talked about it. You can remove all the sexuality from it, like in the J-drama, and still come up with a compelling story because of the way that the characters interact with each other, the way the story is told, and the games used. But I think in the creation of this series, they thought about how the sexuality intertwines with the themes of the story. Yeah, and and I think the ultimate answer to those types of questions, if if you're looking for us to somehow convince you that uh, you can overcome how the sexuality in the show, like, seems gross to you, like, we can't do that. Like, you, in the media that you consume, like, you have to figure out what you're comfortable with, 
And there's nothing wrong with wherever you end up on that spectrum, right? Like we all have to figure out what media we're comfortable with and what is the line for us and stuff that people enjoy that is over the line for me doesn't necessarily make them bad people. And at the same time, if you're like, I can't, I can't even deal with even a little bit of sexuality, like Kakagurui, that's too far for me, then like, I totally understand. And it doesn't make you a bad person either. It's just the media that we choose to enjoy. Yeah, it, you are free to like or dislike whatever you want. And there are just going to be people for which Kakegurui is not content that they want to explore. Even if the things outside the sexuality are interesting because it is so intertwined. But the existence of the J drama gives sort of like, it's like a way to ease in <laughs> in a lot of ways. Yeah, but it's, it's like, it doesn't, it's fine. Like, it's also fine to be like, sorry, that's too horny. Like, it, yeah, it, no, totally. It's not a big deal. I'm just saying, th- 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 since all these versions exist, there is a way to experience what makes Kake Guru interesting without having to sacrifice a particular type of ideal for you if you are turned off by the sexuality but this is just the sort of thing that like it, it comes with the territory yeah th- th- that's it and and i'm not going to try to convince anybody like that somehow they should be like more or less strict on the type of sexual content that they enjoy in their media right like it's it's you you decide that And so, we've come to the end. Thank you for joining me. It was a pleasure talking to you. You're welcome. I enjoyed getting my podcasting freak on. (laughs) (laughs) There, now you never have to invite me back on the show, because I just said that with my voice out loud. (laughs) (laughs) Preparing for the riots. Uh, it was fun to discuss this particular series with you just because it is so different than the type of media we usually discuss on this podcast in more than one way. And I think it's important to make the distinction that it is cool to talk about these sorts of things, right? Like, you know, we we can't... Yeah. I, I... I disregard media all the time by its use of sexualization, but that doesn't mean that it's not worth discussing. Yeah. And I think that's an important thing that I want to I want to instill in people's like just cuz the thing is bad or is like morally oblique and maybe it's not for you doesn't mean that it's not worth discussing and I think it's good to talk about those shows maybe even more just because it is so generally like ignored because of its content yeah sometimes it's nice to just call something what it is and be like this is what it is whether if you like it or you don't like it this is what it is and i hope that this whole episode has served to sort of characterize the show um so that people can make their own decisions about what they like or don't like but this is what it is and i think that's that's a good exercise in itself and as a final note uh, I really hope that the Kakegurui mobile game, Cheating Aloud, comes over to the US at some point. <laughs> oh my god. So, to close this off, Dvac, where can people find you online? Huh, well, you can find me every Tuesday at 8pm <laughs> Central on twitch.tv slash 
for the date night streams where we play through visual novels, which are also sometimes horny, and uh, talk about them and mostly just scream a lot and be gay. <laughs> Look, it's it's the first <laughs> real deep dive into otome games. Again, another thing that is generally like looked down upon for its genre. And uh, and I'm also a uh, part of the Visual Novel Book Club podcast with Slow Beef and Pals, uh, Slow Beef Turbo C, Jim, and uh, Polahoko. Day Night is for shows that we couldn't play on Visual Novel Book Club, but they're both good in different ways. Like Visual Novel Book Club is like a hundred percenting a game and talking about every single thing about it, and Date Night is running through a game and only finishing it if it's good and we like it. Um, what else do I do? I'm also sometimes on Six Feet Under. You can cut this for length. Um, where I play Zeke the Mouse in Mouse Guard, which is, uh, who is a mouse that is being hunted by an owl. Um, and it's very dramatic. Uh, Six Feet Under, for people who maybe don't know, is uh, is a like a, a real play podcast, an actual play podcast where we play tabletop games. Yeah, I have so many. Th- like those are all my things. I think for now. And, as always, you can find me at Chorpsaway, uh, C-H-O-R-P-S-A-W-A-Y, on Twitter and YouTube. You can find the podcast at Coco underscore Disaster on Twitter. You can also find us at CocoDisaster.com, where you'll be able to find our latest episodes, download links. You'll be able to find your way to the archived shows. You'll also find access to our text-only blog that we, uh, that me and friend of the show QB have put together as sort of an exploration of themes and ideas in shows that maybe don't fit the Coco disaster treatment or, you know, that are a little less organized than this wants to be. So, until next time, when Coco disaster goes back to the seasonal look and Zane joins me again to talk about the upcoming shows for the summer season as well as our favorite shows from the spring season. I've been Chorpsoy. I've been DB's Vacuum. And sweet dreams.